Hey, Stephen. Hey, Tim. In the movie we watched for today's podcast, The Manhattan Project, a high school student steals plutonium from a secret government lab to build a homemade nuclear bomb to enter into a science fair. Uh, I feel bad for that kid who just made the volcano with baking soda and vinegar, but at least he didn't have help from adults. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. And I'm joined today and excited to be in our virtual podcast studio by returning special guest Stephen Schwartz, non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist and the former editor of the Nonproliferation Review. Welcome back, Stephen. Thank you. Glad to be here. You suggested this particular movie here for us to be able to watch, and we're recording again in early 2021. So we're all in quarantine. We're in the United States. People have a lot of free time on their hands still to explore new hobbies. You know, for some people, this is in, this involves like baking bread or learning magic tricks, like my, my sister's favorite hobby these days. For the high school student in the center of this 1986 movie you suggested, The Manhattan Project, this student's new project is building a homemade nuclear bomb with weapons-grade plutonium he stole from a secret government lab. Why did you, Stephen, want us to talk about this movie today? <laughs> well, thank you. Well, a few reasons. It's not nearly as well known as a lot of the other films in the, the nuclear weapons, nuclear war pantheon. That's partly because it didn't do as well as the box office yeah. as, it might have, as it might have. It came out in 1986, as you said. I was just sort of beginning my career at that point. And so it's kind of a a touchstone for me. It kind of hit all the right spots when I, I watched it. I, I I probably watched it, I'm sure I watched it once in the theater and maybe maybe twice even, and then probably one or two times after that. But I haven't watched it in years. And so when you contacted me recently and said, hey, you know, we should do another film. And I looked at your list and realized that you hadn't covered this one yet. I thought, hey, this is one that we should we should do. Also, quite honestly, it's a lot of fun, um, even though the message is a little bit muddled. I think it does have a good message. It's similar in, in a lot of ways to war games, mm -hmm. which we can get into after we go over the plot. Yeah, and you're you're ready for that because your Zoom background is the war games big board, <laughs> which I love very much. And it's also definitely more. It's a comedy. I, I guess you can call it a comedy. It's got comedy thriller, comedy of you know heist comedy, elements to maybe it. Maybe something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's definitely more fun and more of a comedy than the previous movie we covered together, which was Seven Days in May, which is a great movie, just not. There are some elements, there are some jokes in there, but they're a little dated these days, I guess. Right. Now, the joke now is that with the uh, the letter from all the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, basically saying that the election was uh, legal and valid and won by Joe Biden, we now have a sort of seven days in May in reverse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The military is trying to, trying to stop the coup. Yeah, yeah. I think we have about seven days-ish or so left um, before for the inauguration. So we'll see how... Four, four. Four, okay. You can't do four days in May. That's that's too short of a movie. Uh, so th this particular film was directed by Marshall Brickman, who previously collaborated on a lot of Woody Allen projects, uh, including he was the co-screenwriter for Annie Hall, uh, for which he won an Oscar. He's also uh, co-wrote the Woody Allen movies Manhattan and Manhattan Murder Mystery. But since 
since those don't have nukes in them, we're only going to talk about the third film in the Marshall Manhattan Mayhem trilogy. <laughs> the cast is great. Before we get into the plot here, there's a character, John Mathewson, who's played by the lovely John Lithgow. I remember him from Cliffhanger. That's my favorite uh, movie with John Lithgow. Uh, but you wrote down here... Uh, Buckaroo Banzai. He also plays a scientist in Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, yeah. A little bit different, but he's got a bit of uh, his character in this film. He's he's very wide-eyed uh, in these. He's, he's that uh, scientist in this movie who discovers a new way of enriching, purifying plutonium. Uh, we have a character, Paul Stevens, who's a high school student. He's a science whiz, uh, played by Christopher Collette. And the only movie I remember him from is the, if, you've, if you love bad movies, you probably have heard of Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> He's like one of the, he's the main male lead, um, hopefully that's not a spoiler, uh, in, in Sleepaway Camp. I have not seen that one. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Okay. We have a character played by Cynthia Nixon, a very young Cynthia Nixon, we know from Sex and the City. Uh, so this was the one thing that got my wife to watch a little bit of this movie because I had to show her she's a big Sex and the City fan. She plays a high school student named Jenny. And then we've got Elizabeth Stevens, who is Paul's mother, uh, played by Jill Eikenberry, who people may know from L.A. Law. And finally, I, I just wanted to point out here, we'll mention when they come up in the movie, but uh, some fun cameos by Richard Jenkins as a lab tech, a radiation lab tech, who's a stickler for uh, significant quantities protocols. And then John Mahoney, who plays a military official, and he, you may know him from The Dad from Frasier. So kind of a, a, not a bad cast here. But as you mentioned, despite this cast, despite this great writing and directing team, uh, the movie didn't necessarily do all that well. It made just under $4 million on an $18 million budget. Rotten Tomatoes doesn't love it either. It gives it about a 50% fresh rating with the uh, critics and even a little bit less with audiences. But we're here to talk about it because it's important to you, Stephen. It's important to the nuclear history of film. And I've got two questions as we go through this. One is how easy would it be for someone to actually build their own plutonium-fueled implosion design nuclear bomb if they had access to weapons-grade plutonium? We can get into that a little bit because that's always a question people ask me at dinner parties. And finally, what does this movie have to say about the allure of, of, of people who are, are brilliant, who want to work on nuclear science and advancing those technologies um, to places we never thought could be possible but the results of those pursuits create you know weapons of mass destruction because the movie tries to get into that a little bit like how do you pair those two things together and i think that's probably one of the most compelling pieces of this film well uh, let's run through the plot of the movie here as usual spoiler warning if you weren't like steven and saw this movie in the theater uh back in the day go check it out it's used to be available on hbo as one of the movies that i always that's how i i saw it here previously but i had to rent it recently on on amazon prime i think it, it rotated off but it's it's available on streaming it's not like one of the movies we cover where you have to download it illegally from a russian website or something <laughs> that's a brilliant achievement you'd get the nobel if you could publish publish i said if all right set him up someplace quiet away from prying eyes paul come say hi Dr. Matheson, this is my son, Paul. He's hot for my mother. He figures I'm a dumb kid. He's so. hot for your mother, really? Uh-huh. He's got all these security clearances. I don't know what they are. Los Alamos, Oak Ridge. What is that? What does it look like? A five-leaf clover. Where'd you find it? Growing outside that lab. You know the odds on that kind of mutation happening naturally without chemicals or radiation or something? It's like a billion to one. It never happens. Maybe you're just very lucky. Who knows about this? Just us. We should do something. 
We can get in there. What can they do to us anyway? We're kids. It's a prank. Any idea who he's working with? I don't think he's working with anybody. I think he did it by himself. Who are these people? Does he feel that people don't like him? That he's special or different? Is he unhappy with the present political system? They can't do anything to me. Why not? I'm underage. What do you think this is, a school play? You could start a war, for God's sake. Now stop screwing around before it's too late. The package has arrived, and it's hot. You don't know what you took, Paul. I do not want them off the premises with that gadget, do you copy? Give me a clear shot behind the ear, and I'll turn them off like a switch. Okay, so Stephen, why don't you uh, start us off here? Sure. So the film has kind of a cold open with John Lithgow's character, John Matthewson, in a laboratory conducting some sort of tour for military and government officials and conducting also some sort of experiment with plutonium. Chiron on the screen says Federated University's High Energy Physics Project in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he's really, really almost eerily enthusiastic about Mm -hmm. what he's doing. He's got this gleam in his eyes and a bit of a grin At one point, he lets sparks from some equipment (laughs) go from his finger to the equipment and back. And and the military people are like, oh, that's that's a little creepy. Yeah, Um, lots lots of lights, lots of buttons, lots of sparks, flashes. It it seems a little bit, you know, mad scientist-y. Yeah. And he explains that what they're doing is using a laser to enrich or purify plutonium-239, which is not something we actually do, but it's something we did seriously investigate in the 1980s. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about this because this is something that I've always found to be fascinating. When I was in in grad school, I wrote a paper on laser enrichment and some of the proliferation risk. And to my surprise, uh, it it won an award that allowed me to present at a nuclear materials conference to people who were like John Lithgow's character, way more smart than me on these kinds of uh, nuclear science topics. So they would come to me and start talking to me about the science of it. And I would go, I'm a policy guy. I'm just here to tell you guys that what you're concerned about you should be concerned also about proliferation. Right. Plutonium is a byproduct of burning uranium in a research reactor or a reactor that's designed to make weapons-grade plutonium. You then have to take the stuff you really want, which is this one isotope, plutonium-239. You want to take it out of the rest of the elements that are there, uh, which includes some kind of unburned uranium and some other really nasty stuff that's there, including also plutonium-240, which is a different isotope. So you want to get all that stuff out of there because really you want a certain percentage, weapons-grade percentage, we'll get into here in a second, of... 239, right? Because 239 is the one that that you could actually uh, use in an implosion bomb and some of these other uh, designs, and you want to do that. And normally what we do with that is we build these plutonium reprocessing facilities that use chemicals to separate the various elements out, and it's very intensive. It's, you know, you need a lot of space to do this, and you work in like hot boxes where people, because it's very, very, very dangerous chemicals, radiation, all that kind of stuff. And with laser enrichment, the idea there is we don't need to do that. We don't need to build these huge facilities, we figured out another way to do this. Instead of spinning uranium, which is normally what it's used for, as you were hinting at, uh, uranium enrichment, instead of um, putting them into a gas form and then spinning them in a centrifuge and the heavier elements will go to the outside, the lighter ones will stay in the middle and you kind of just siphon off that way and you get your elements you want. You put uranium into a gas, you then use lasers to selectively charge the particular uranium-235 element that you want and then you use magnets that are charged uh, to be able to draw those elements away. That's like the theory of the, the science and how everything works here. And the idea here is you could do this in a small 
smaller space than these large enrichment facilities. So the concern that from a proliferation standpoint is people could hide these facilities. Potentially they don't need as much electricity. It's just harder from a from a challenge of like verification and surveillance. Um, it'll be different anyways. But in this movie, they figured out a way to do this with plutonium, which is like you mentioned, we we thought about it, but we've never we've never figured out laser enrichment at all for uranium, at least not to the point where it's commercial scale and the ability to do this cheaper than the other methods. But we never have really gotten that far in plutonium. Like if you search for plutonium laser enrichment, you're not going to get many sources in the last 20 years. Right. I mean, you'll find out about this one project that we were thinking about doing in the mid-1980s called the Special Isotope Separation uh, Project, which would have been based at the Idaho National Engineering Lab Hmm. near Idaho Falls. And the idea was, like you said, that you would use the power of light to purify the plutonium instead of using dumping uh, radioactive fuel into acid and chemically separating it out, which apart from all the other things you mentioned, creates enormous amounts of long-lived liquid radioactive waste, which which is incredibly nasty. So the dream of using lasers to do this would be that you could bypass all that nastiness. I mean, it would still create some waste and you could do it with a much smaller footprint. But for both of those reasons, it's a proliferation nightmare. And so the Bush administration, the first Bush administration actually canceled the program in 1990, A, because the Cold War ended, uh, but B, because there was also massive public opposition to it in Idaho, uh, courtesy of the grassroots group, the Snake River Alliance, which I had some dealings with Hmm. back when I was the Washington representative of the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability. So uh, this is, I mean, this is real technology. It is something that we consider doing. And it's real at the time that the movie was done, which is interesting. And according to one article that I read, this technology, in fact, an article about this technology in Scientific American is what sort of piqued the curiosity of screenwriter Marshall Brickman and was sort of the impetus for him developing the idea for this, that you know some scientists were working on something like this. I'll give the director who who also wrote this movie a lot of credit for the research that went into this. I, there are some little things we'll we'll nitpick here and there, but really, there's a lot of science behind this. And so John's experiment was was successful. He quote unquote made the the purest plutonium that's ever been made. The movie gives you an exact number. It's it's 99.997% pure. And normally weapons grade plutonium is, is traditionally understood in the open source to be about 93% pure. Is that your understanding as well, Stephen? Uh, at least, yeah, yeah. Yeah, around 93%. So the movie shows the plutonium. You kind of see it in the last step. There's a guy holding um, a vial and it, you see these glowing green drips going into a container here. Plutonium, it's not... This is where I was upset at first and then I guess the movie <laughs> kind of tried to back it. And I'm also... It's beyond my... I've never worked in a plutonium reprocessing facility. I've never handled plutonium. I do know that plutonium doesn't naturally glow green. Nor is it a liquid. <laughs> yeah, it's a metal. It's like metal flakes. If you look at it, it looks like if you had um like a really... like a Essentially, usually they're in ring or pellet form, but that's just because you can mold it that way. But it's a silvery metal. It, it oxidizes pretty easily, so it becomes tarnished if you let it ex- exposed to the air. But I guess that's a little less cool than, than glowing green. I've always been fascinated by this because this is, you know, one of the things people ask about a lot on, on the internet and, and, and again at these dinner parties where people would humor me about my nuclear pop culture stuff is whether or not this stuff glows green. And it seems like that always comes back to radium because that was one of the people's first like exposure to real radioactive substances in their life and you could use radium 
to if you mixed it with some things, they can kind of glow greenish blue in the dark. And that's why I used to put it on watches and um, that whatever you wanted to gl- to glow green, uh, you could you could have it that way. So I guess that kind of just becomes everything radioactive, like The Simpsons and all of that glows green. But I guess the movie explains it later that the, it's metal flakes inside of a green ooze that kind of holds the flakes together. I'm not sure why you would need that, but there is some references to some of these things in some sources that I've seen. I don't know much more. Do you know anything else? Have you heard about? I don't, and I suspect it's all pretty classified. But no, I, I yeah. don't. It doesn't make it doesn't make a ton of sense. But within the logic of the movie, it all it, it all sort fine. of makes sense. Yeah. It could just be the way that John likes to handle his plutonium. Who knows? <laughs> He's an eccentric guy. So at this lab, these government and military people are pretty excited that uh, this tour worked out well. The experiment was a success. It's a Nobel Prize winning worthy result, and and they think that a nuclear weapon of this size, any kind of uh, holds a you know relatively small, put up but a hand about a foot apart. He says this with this purity level of ninety nine point nine nine seven percent would be a bomb twenty times bigger than anyone else's. And again, this is I don't want to nitpick too much and get super critical, although that's kind of what we do here. Uh, do you think a difference of a ninety three to ninety nine percent would make much of a difference in terms of the yield size for these kinds of things? Everything else being equal with the design, right? Well, the way I understand it, and I'm not a nuclear physicist is that the yield of a bomb is the function of the amount of plutonium in a given weapon and how efficiently it fissions. So just because plutonium is more pure by a few percentage points doesn't make it more powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, You would just need to use less of it to achieve the same result, which is perhaps what the military guy is suggesting when he holds out his hands like, this would be a relative, my hands are about a foot apart. So this would be a relatively small weapon versus let's say little boy, which was what, 10 feet long or something. Yeah. So, or maybe it was longer than that, but uh, and, and 10,000 pounds, obviously. So, you know, if you ha- can use less material and get more bang for your buck, maybe that's what he's referring to. But I guess this is the movie's shorthand way of saying this is powerful stuff. It's more powerful than other plutonium that other countries have. Yeah, and it makes sense. You know, you know, trying to reduce the the weight and everything is important when you're trying to put these things on rockets to see how far they can go. And if you want to put 10 warheads on a single missile, you know, how much each one weighs could be a factor, or at least each bomb that you could keep the same weight, but it has more uh, there. But normally, I'm, you know, from from the literature that I've read about bomb designers and, and then talking about the way, how their work advanced, it's, it's a lot of it has to do with the, the design. How do you capture the neutrons that are trying to escape? How do you hold everything together a little bit longer before everything explodes and vaporizes? And then you have a little bit more efficiency. But hey, you know, they're pretty excited about it in the the movie here. I did find some references, though, in in, in actual real world history, where even since in like in the 1960s, we've been able to do this kind of level of of purity. It's just a question of uh, do you really need to? If you get to 93%, you're okay. Why go to 100? There's references here a little bit using a process called electro-refinement, which they use in a lot of different um, chemical processing for all kinds of different materials. But you can use that to refine from 93 to 99.9. But in in the movie's world, that's never happened before, uh, even though in, in the real world it happened at Los Alamos National Lab. So back back to the experiment. The scientists are pretty excited. They toast each other with champagne and styrofoam cups, which to me evoked the toast that Enrico Fermi and his team made uh, underneath the squat in the squash court underneath the, uh, the the seats at Stagg Field at the University of Chicago on December second, nineteen forty two, when they achieved the world's first self sustaining artificial chain reaction. One of the scientists pulled out a a bottle of Chianti. They had paper cups. 
they made a toast, the bottle's <laughs> been preserved in the National Archives. So I'd like to think, I haven't talked to Marshall Brickman, but I'd like to think that that was a deliberate evoking of, of that uh, historical moment. I think that's a very legitimate comparison here. So the, the military people, they're excited about this, but they want to set a lab up for John away from prying eyes so he can continue his work. Uh, they mentioned something like, we need to make sure that he can do his experiments. We need to get them done now, and they need to happen before Geneva. And it's not really clear. They don't say what it is, but it it, you, it could be some sort of arms control talk that might future limit uh, plutonium processing uh, or maybe fissile material production or something and they want to get their work done in advance because it's not 100% clear that's is it a rogue element of the military funding these experiments it doesn't seem like that but I've seen so many movies these days where that is like a plot point like the movie Spies Like Us was a similar kind of plot I don't think so I, I think it's just to try to get to something maybe it's one of those uh, advance your technology before an arms control agreement so you have something to negotiate away Potentially, that's happened a lot with some of the SALT negotiations and things, but do you have any thoughts about what this could possibly be and why they would need to do a secret government lab? But Well, Geneva is where arms control talks took place in the 1980s, so uh, maybe there's a summit as well, like you said, maybe trading something for something. I mean, as a practical matter, honestly, I don't think the military would be involved at this point, either funding or supervising the research. That would be Mm -hmm. more the responsibility of the Department of Energy, would the military be interested? Uh, absolutely, but it would really be more the civilian side of things. But again, I think they're trying to make this out that it's it's a military program, program not a civilian energy program. Um, as to why they need to set up a, a private lab and then where they go, which I mean, we're sort of jumping ahead there, mm-hmm. but this would normally be done at one of the one of any number of Department of Energy facilities in the real world, as I said before, it was done in Idaho, but you could also see it being done at Oak Ridge, at Livermore, Los Alamos. Maybe Hanford? Uh, possibly Hanford. You know, why it would need to be done at a apparently non-government private facility in the suburbs. But in the logic of the movie, this makes sense. But in the real yeah. world, it doesn't. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I always think it's uh, the one bit of history I was thinking about this was is that is plutonium reprocessing or fissile material production prohibited? Because that I was trying to trying to remember my history here because I remember Jimmy Carter put an official moratorium on plutonium reprocessing, but that was back in '77. He was hoping to be able to model U.S. behavior to convince other countries to not also reprocess plutonium anymore for for weapons purposes. I think that also covered for for re- um, energy reactors. The Clinch River Breeder reactor was yeah. killed at the same time for the same reason. So they wouldn't do either any any sort of reprocessing um, for proliferation challenges for also environmental reasons. Then I. I got checked here in my research that Ronald Reagan had lifted that ban in 1981. So it wasn't illegal. They hadn't they hadn't really even done it, though, in the, in the 80s because it was still too cost prohibitive. So I was just wondering if that was it, but it doesn't seem like it's it. But either way, we have we have something happening. Uh, the, the lab is, starts to get set up. I love the, the very long, slow-moving scenes of over the opening credits of, like, moving trucks bringing the lab equipment. The movie takes its time in yeah. places. It's the pacing compared to what you would see today, is somewhat leisurely. A little bit. They're excited about this project, uh, but the the military people uh, and the the civilians here, they don't fully trust John. No, they might also be concerned, you know, drawing out that old trope that he's a mad scientist. So yeah, yeah. who who knows? (laughs) (laughs) We get this lab set up, and it's in Ithaca, New York, and that's also the home of the other star of this movie, uh, Paul Stevens, who is a high school student. 
And we get introduced to him because he wakes up in the middle of the night. And you, you know he's smart because his room is completely th uh, themed and decked out with science stuff. Lots of rocket stuff on the wall. And clearly he's like he's familiar with building and taking apart computers and things like that. And he, and he meets his mom, who's still awake. It's around like 4.30 in the morning. He's a little bit distraught, so he offers to make her some hot chocolate. Uh, to go along with there's uh, a 4.30 a.m. cigarette. There's lots of smoking in this movie. You can tell it's a, a late 80s film. Although Paul twice tells the characters who are smoking, you know, that's bad for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we find him again uh, in his in his environment in, at school in chemistry class and makes some sort of little explosive substance to pull a prank at another kid. And when this little explosion happens, it's not much. It's a little, little spark here. Uh, this kid who is clearly like meant to be... Uh, a foil to, to Paul, who's a little bit of a jerk kid, I guess. But he all he was trying to do was explain to his professor how a plutonium bomb worked. And he's just trying to explain that and the, also to the audience. And then his little prank gets pulled. And I, I personally feel attacked because I feel like that would be the kid that I would have been in school. Hurry up, he's coming. What is that? Nitrogen triiodide. What's it do? Unstable with respect to shock. What's that mean? Once it dries, if you touch it, it explodes. Oh, you're crazy. You say that like it's a bad thing. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Last time we learned that plutonium is perfectly suited for the release of enormous amounts of energy due to its ability to fission under the action of slow neutrons. Now here we have the isotope plutonium 239 and here we have two very interesting inventions based on this now can anyone tell us the principle behind the implosion device yes roland yes your implosion design simply uses a chemical high explosive to squeeze a subcritical piece of weapons grade plutonium 239 until it's supercritical thereby producing an atomic explosion thank you roland thank you mr wilkie uh, but yeah, that's a that was a fun little way of introducing Paul to the to the movie. Uh, what what did you what's your first impressions of Paul when this is the first we see of him? He's I, you, clearly he, you get the impression right away that he's he's very smart, uh, that he's a bit of a show off, and that he likes to have fun. Also, that he cares for his mom, obviously, mm -hmm. but that he you know when it comes to sort of science and stuff, he's sort of the the mischievous kid in class who's perhaps a little bit too smart for his own good. In that respect, he's not like David Lightman in War Games, Matthew Broderick's character, who has to, you know, change his grades. <laughs> yeah. uh, he may be a really smart hacker, but he's not too good in school. Paul Stevens is really smart. Yeah, and you, and you get that. He he didn't answer the question when the teacher was asking about the, how a plutonium bomb worked. I didn't learn this in high school. That would have been a fun uh, high school class. My chemistry class, we talked about other things, and we talked a lot about, uh, you know, molecules and things, but not nothing about bomb design. I guess... That's probably all for the best for me. Uh, but in, in this class, the, the professor is talking about the different types of uses of plutonium here. And he, he, he implies kind of a little bit because of the phrasing. He says that, the, that there are two very interesting inventions based on plutonium-239's capabilities. And he, and he basically talks about the bombs used against Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. But he pulls down like something that seems permanent, pulls down like a map, like a diagram of the two right. different bomb designs. Fascinating that this must come up enough that they have to have that kind of up there. But it is something that worth pointing out is that the graphic uh, is correctly labeled that the bomb used against Hiroshima was has to be using uranium, not plutonium, because of the way that this design is 
is made. It'll spontaneously explode before it reaches critical mass. Yeah. And so it's, it'll, it'll, it'll fizzle instead of getting a, a full yield. So that's why. And they talk about that a lot in another movie that we covered on the podcast, Fat Man and, and Little Boy. They go into great detail about why they had to come up with this implosion design, which is, you want to ex- explain the implosion design? This was the bomb design that was used um, in the Trinity test, as well as the, against Nagasaki. The implosion design it was required, again, because if you try to use plutonium in a gun-type bomb, it, the, the plutonium will start to ignite before before the two masses are, are fully assembled. And therefore, you'll get a fizzle instead of an actual uh, nuclear yield. So it was quite a complicated endeavor during the actual Manhattan Project to try to figure out how to set off plutonium in a way. And what they came up with was implosion or squeezing it. So you have a, let's say, a grapefruit-sized sphere of plutonium. If you can squeeze it down to the size of something like a tennis ball, it'll become supercritical and explode. But as long as it's in that subcritical state of the grapefruit size, It'll be it'll be reasonably okay. It won't go off by by itself. And there was a lot of complicated science to go into that. You can make an implosion bomb with, with uranium. There's not really any point to it since you can use plutonium too. Mm-hmm. But gun-type weapons can only be the ones that are dropped that were dropped on um, Hiroshima can only be used with uranium and plutonium. You know, it, all of our bombs these days are are implosion-type weapons. So that's that's why you do that, and that's ultimately the design that figures in this film. And the thing that I always find really fascinating why this movie, uh, you know, jumping ahead a slight little bit, is that it, Paul Stevens builds an implosion design. In most of the the concern people that had uh, in real life and also in movies about, you know, terrorists or non-state actors building weapons, very rarely do you hear about them building an implosion-style bomb. It's often the gun design with uranium. And there's reasons for that. It's because it took the Manhattan Project to figure out how to be able to very accurately create the high explosive conventional explosive that shrinks that thing from a grapefruit to a tennis ball. They have to do that in a precise way that everything is symmetrical if you want to get that right mass creation and the maximum yield. They, They ran lots of experiments and it's not something you can just really figure out. Maybe people could figure it out in the 1980s if they had access to a design but it's pretty difficult to do to be able to shape the explosives that way. It was a real vexing problem during the actual Manhattan Project, and it look, took a lot of time and effort, and ultimately uh, George Kistiakowsky mm. uh, was behind the development of uh, spherical lenses that would symmetrically, like you said, compress the core and sort of, so it would become supercritical. But the reason that happens in this film is that uh, Paul discovers a source of plutonium, yeah. so why yes, not? <laughs> Paul, he... Throughout all of this stuff, uh, the after the prank and everything, and after he gets his lecture on, on how to build a bomb, uh, which which comes in handy a little bit later, he meets up with a, a girl named Jenny, who I mentioned is played by a very young Cynthia Nixon. But they make a, a plan to study together a little bit later. It's a, it's one of those like study dates that's really more of a date than a study. They make plans a little bit later on to, to get together. And, and not to insert a pun, but... These two have great chemistry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one yeah. of the it's one of the winning parts of the film. The way that they play uh, off of each other and kind of and influence each other as the plot develops. Yeah, we got to be careful because when your chemistry is that explosive, the relationship can implode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so we, there is there is a fun quick scene there. You see it when she's at her car when they make the date together as he retrieves the car keys from the glove box, and you learn that not only is he good at building these 
explosive devices, but he's also pretty good at picking locks and things which could potentially come in handy later. He's MacGyver. Yeah, he could do a little bit of everything. By the way, you, you forgot to mention, so he gets the keys out using a nail file that she provides him. Mm -hmm. And this becomes very important later on in the film, twice, actually. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's he's pretty handy here. So I'll, I'll, I'll file that one away for later. <laughs> Ooh, terrible. <laughs> so so John, uh, the scientist, John Mathewson, he's looking for an apartment because even though it's a secret government lab, um, he still has to find his own housing. So he goes to a real estate agent to be able to find an apartment to sublet. And this is kind of funny these days because you would normally just do this through uh, Craigslist or some online listing. Uh, but I did do this. The, my very first apartment I ever rented on my own was I went to a real estate agent in Wilmington, Delaware and said, what do you got? and was able to find something uh so i do know this experience did you hit well. on her uh it didn't work out that way the uh the relationship <laughs> wouldn't work the hours were too long i was working but but john's got time to be able to do some dating and he runs into elizabeth who's paul's mother who's a real estate agent paul comes after school to meet his mother at her office and it's it's clear like john is like instantly boom i'm flirting with with the mother i i would like to go on a date with the mother and she's not really excited by it there's kind of a little bit of a back and forth a mix of positive and, and negative kind of chemistry with with paul and john but John finds a way to negotiate a date with Paul's mom, and it's by inviting Paul to visit uh, his laboratory and see his his fancy new laser uh, that he that he's working on. Because it looks like John um, kind of I think notices a book on lasers or something that Paul is no, holding. Right? Paul is holding a copy of Scientific American, mm. which talks about laser enrichment. Could be the very article that Marshall Brickman read. Oh, I did not catch that. Him to write this, so that's he sees that. And a little scheme forms in his head and he thinks, you know, <laughs> like he, 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 he hilariously tries to ask Elizabeth out and completely fails at one. He doesn't realize that she's a mother. Then when he realizes she's a mother, he assumes that they're married. Then when he finds out that she and her husband separated six months, he goes, ha, ah! oh, and then he, then he looks at Paul and realizes that was the totally inappropriate thing to do with the son there. <laughs> and then somehow rescues it by getting him to come to his lab and saying, if you'll do this, I'll take you all out to dinner. He's clearly not focused on the fact of like, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to tell anybody about this lab. <laughs> now, that's that's sort of the one really, I mean, okay, so the government has gone to all this trouble to set him up in this facility and pretend that it's not what it is. And now he's going and inviting a high school student to come and tour it so that he can date the kid's mother. Uh, it's a good inciting incident. This guy really should have a security clearance. Yeah. This is very close to a scenario that I, when I got my security briefing the first time I had a clearance a long time ago, was exactly like one of the honeypot scenarios that was described <laughs> to me, like to avoid and to recognize people who all of a sudden like have an, an attraction to you that's unexplained, but they have questions about where you work and all of this stuff. So John also doesn't, we'll find out, keep his security badge in a very safe place either. <laughs> But before all this happens, uh, Paul, he rides his bike over to the lab and he kind of casually is, is is given the tour. He walks around looking at all of these liquid jars of green substance that he figures out pretty quickly that it's plutonium. Not sure how he figures that out other than... He was reading the article in Scientific American. Boom, there we go. He's a... <laughs> That's exactly why. Um, so he he does see this these jars being handled by a robotic arm. He asks, what is the substance? And um, John says that it's americium, uh, 241, which is made at the plant. That's not a bad cover story, right? Uh, it's not bad, except that Paul is super, super smart. And he would know that americium-241 is a radioactive decay byproduct of plutonium-239. And you don't really need to make it 
You just need yeah. to remove it because it's a poison to the, to the chain reaction. You need to remove it from plutonium cores over time. Otherwise it will build up and your weapons won't go boom. So, you know, a smart kid like Paul will know what that is. So that was just a really stupid lie on John's part. And he's really, you know, now, now Paul's antenna are up and his curiosity is, is heightened about what's going on in this facility. Right. It's if you're at a, at a pharmaceutical lab and you're making a substance and, and someone's like, well, what is, what's in that Petri dish? Oh, it's just a substance that happens to be a byproduct of anthrax. But we're really making, really care about this, this, this thing. Don't worry about the anthrax over there. We just throw that away. John seems to be more in the mind of like, this kid is, he reads an article here and there, but maybe he's just looking at the pictures. He's more of a kind of showing off. He shows off a cigar that he lights with the laser, uh, which was certainly kind of fun to see here. And he cuts through a steel plate with it. He's basically, yeah, no, he's definitely showing off. It's like, look what I can do with a laser, huh? I'm mm-hmm. really, this is cool, right, kid? You know, he's, I think he's underestimating Paul. Exactly. And Paul, I think, realizes something is, something's odd because when he's outside, he's tying a shoe and he sees a five leaf clover kind of outside of the facility. And he knows this is weird because five leaf clovers don't really exist. There's some sort of mutation happening here. Probably should have told John that there's some sort of uh, radiation leak out of their lab because that's a pretty big concern here. Paul, he he seems uneasy about John, uh, but they still get, John gets his date. So it doesn't matter. All these security leaks and everything, he still gets his date. Funny enough, Paul is there with him. They go together. And when Paul goes to the car of John, uh, John's car to go get a sweater for his mom, he takes that as an opportunity, I guess, what, to use the file from earlier and yep. opens opens up the glove box and finds a bunch of old work badges and current work badges for John, which I guess are just the security clearances. Or maybe they're active and he just has access to all these facilities, but it includes the Department of Energy, Oak Ridge National Lab, Los Alamos, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, kind of a bunch of big places that are involved with science, but also weapons production. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, and I don't, those aren't really his clearances. Those are just his ID badges and maybe also uh, the way to get into uh, certain secure mm-hmm. uh, facilities. But yeah, storing them in a locked glove compartment in a Mercedes is probably not <laughs> the best security protocol. Again, um, he needs to be visiting his security officer and have a refresh on how to handle classified information. Yeah, that was another one that they told us. Don't wear it on the metro. Don't leave it in a place where anyone can see it. Don't let some you know precocious child find it. And um, one thing I wanted to mention is uh, one of the fun things I got to do in my career recently was visit the National Ignition Facility at Lawrence Livermore. Um, Have you been there as well? About 11 years ago, but yes. Massive facility also stands in for the Warp Core and the Star Trek movie franchise, yeah, yeah. not the recent, the recent ones. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. It's also, but if you don't know that it's has never fulfilled its purpose and it's, it was massively over budget, <laughs> it's much less interesting to me once I know that. Yeah, I know. Well, when I was on the tour, I um, it was really interesting. It's like the world's, uh, I don't, I think it's still the world's most powerful laser. It, it is really cool to see it. Uh, we did, it wasn't running when we were there, but it is a very large, huge building where all of this stuff is located. Uh, I remember looking, I didn't see any jars of liquid plutonium <laughs> or anywhere. Did you see anything? Uh, no, the liquid, only liquid I saw might have been a water fountain. So no, and maybe some cooling water, but no, nothing <laughs> like that. Nothing like that at all. Compared, honestly, compared to that facility, which we both know is, you know, a massive building, uh, John's little setup, which apparently is sort of a precursor to some much larger industrial size setup, mm-hmm. is, is pretty tidy. 
it's not too big. And there also aren't many places where the laser itself is visible. It's mostly in tubes running through the building, uh, but it's not like in the in this one where the laser can be reflected with, we'll talk about it in a second here, but reflected with mirrors, like it's open and exposed. Everything right. was pretty close except for that core area, as you mentioned, was, was used. I think it was the Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, so back to the movie, Paul is on his study date with Jenny, and he talks about the fact that he saw the plutonium there and that he knows it's plutonium and that the scientist must be up to something. As you were were saying earlier, Paul is upset that John invited him to this lab and figured he was just this dumb kid uh, who's probably uh, reading Scientific America because there was like an um, an ad for a skateboard or something in there that he wanted. <laughs> Once he shows off the, f- the five-leaf clovers and how many of them there are, uh, now Jenny's upset. And Jenny's got a bit of a, a journalistic background with her. She wants to, to be like a, a Woodward and Bernstein type reporter. So she's really into this now. And she's upset that people would build something like this in secret in her hometown without uh, telling people. She says, right, you need to have hearings. You need let the community know about this. Yeah, there are laws, she said. That she's really getting, you know, I think it's important, you know, that Paul is basically, he's apolitical. Yeah. Uh, completely, in a way that kind of mirrors John's approach to life, such as we can see it through the film. You know, he's, he's interested in stuff, but it has no reflection on the political world. So at one point, you know, I mean, Jenny is spurring him on. Who knows about this? Just us. We should do something. And she says, you know, this isn't funny. You know what this is like? It's like when you read about, I don't know, Anne Frank or something, and you say to yourself, Jesus, why didn't they do something? The whole world is collapsing. They just sat around. Life as usual. Maybe it'll go away. But it never goes away. It only gets worse. And nobody thinks about the future. And she looks at Paul, who's looking at her, and she says, what's the matter? And he stares at her and says, who's Anne Frank? He just doesn't, he doesn't get it. So maybe he's not that great a student. Maybe he's good at chemistry and science. But, you know, politics and literature is not his forte. I don't know. But in any case, she's the one who's now really agitated about this and sort of starts to put the plot further into motion. This motivates Paul to figure out a plan to infiltrate the lab under the cover of an approaching thunderstorm. He gets, you know, lightning strikes him and (laughs) he decides to use the lightning strikes to break in because, of course, the main weakness that all security systems have is bad weather. Uh, So he he comes up with this plan and while they're watching the movie... Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still, which is a, a movie about an, an alien who comes to Earth to convince people to stop making weapons of mass destruction like nukes. Otherwise, the aliens will come and end the planet because right. once you... Message, 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 message. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right on your head here. Um, but only if you know what that film is. That uh, only works if you get that reference. Back in the days, I didn't date a lot in high school, but I do think that if I suggested we watch that movie, it wouldn't have uh, gone much further but uh it works it works in on on paul and jenny they form a bit more of a romantic relationship but before they start making out uh they they make a decoy plutonium jar a substance that they're going to squeeze into one of these plutonium jars and they basically make this with what like dish soap shampoo some metal flakes that they happen to have around the house but they make something to do a little bit of a switch around they get in a car they go to the house uh i think it's paul's house where john is there and they're they're having a date i try to see if that movie that they were watching was something um nuke wise but it was it was uh, like an audrey hepburn movie that didn't have a nuke plot probably had something romantic in there that i didn't see um but anyways he goes in the car again and it steals the the government badge that he needs to get into 
the the lab, or he goes back to Jenny's car, but not before he makes a little bit of a joke and he compares um, John to being do- like like Doctor Strangelove. Right, absolutely. Doctor Strangelove is in there hitting on my mother. He also says when they pull up, he says German car. Can you believe it? Because John <laughs> drives a Mercedes. So I mean, there's references in there. Yeah, yeah. The film knows what it's doing. Strangelove. What kind of a name is that? That ain't no crowd name, is it, Stanley? He changed it when he became a citizen. It used to be McVectic Lieber. Uh, a crowd by any other name, I think. <laughs> Paul uh, decides that they're going to go and, and do this plan and when, the, when Jenny is a little bit concerned about maybe it's hey is this a really the right thing to do breaking into a government lab they might shoot us all that stuff and, and she he basically says no no we're just kids we, they literally can't do anything to us uh, so they can't get in trouble in a bit of a crazy scene I, I enjoyed this scene but it is really silly Jenny convinces this well-meaning but a little bumbling security guard the only security guard basically at the entire lab convinces him to let her drive her car through the outer gates because she says she's lost and she has car trouble and this guy feels a little bit little sensitive and he wants to come and help out which allows paul who's in the trunk of the car to jump out and you know gonna sneak into the building here walk me through the the oceans 11 heist uh that that he's able to get in <laughs> and it you know and it really and it makes sense and i, I watched this with my 17 year old daughter who'd never seen it before and she totally got off on it she thought oh, it was lovely. she was actually figuring it out Oh, that's going to... They sneak onto the property. He's hiding in the back of her hatchback. She convinces the guard, because she's a pretty girl who's crying, to let her in so that he can help her figure out how to get turned around and back to Cornell, which is on the other side of of town. Mm -hmm. And as, as she's driving between the gate and the facility, Paul jumps out of the car with his gear in a bag and races toward the building. The guard comes out to see what's going on with Jenny. Paul sneaks in, of course, with the ID card. He checks the security cameras, turns them all off, or basically sets them to look like they've been set off by the lightning storm. And then the guard comes back, is going to call for help for Jenny, realizes the cameras are out, does the right thing, calls Mm -hmm. his supervisor and says, hey, the cameras are all down. What, What am I supposed to do here? At the next big lightning strike, Paul takes two Frisbees, and throws them down the hallway, setting off the motion detectors simultaneously. And the security guard's like, well, that's just weird. You know, simultaneously, that can't be right. Paul <laughs> there can't be two the people here. Right. Paul retrieves the Frisbees, goes, gets into the lab again with John's ID badge, and starts to find a way to retrieve the plutonium. And then Paul uses his computer smarts to use the remote control arm to deliver him a, uh, a bottle of plutonium Nutrell shampoo, which is sort of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And then he replaces that with his mock plutonium so that nobody will realize what's going on, at least for, for a little while. And then, quite ingeniously, he uses the laser, which he must know something about, but he also saw John demonstrate. He uses a laser to cut a hole in the basically the corrugated wall of the lab and then takes a remote-controlled car that Jenny's younger brother had and was playing with because they were supposedly babysitting Mm -hmm. the brother while they were on their study date, and tapes the plutonium jar into the bed of the truck and sends it outside of the building. Otherwise, the plutonium, if they had to bring it through the the entranceway, the kind of radioactive portal detection system would have set off. Exactly. You can't get it out any other way. So he decides to do that because, of course, when he walked into the lab, he saw that that the sensor was there. Then he puts everything back quite exactly the way it was, sneaks back out of the lab and tells Jenny he needs a few more minutes to retrieve the plutonium, at which point she hides the lug nuts for the tire (laughs) so that another 
this a cop or somebody who's happened by who knows the security guard needs a little bit more time to put two and two together. But before he leaves the lab, he spikes the security guard's coffee with a little bit of extra sugar because he's a prankster. And <laughs> not not a great thing because the guy might put two and two together, but or or is diabetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then he goes around the back of the lab retrieves the plutonium by running the remote controlled car through a culvert out the back of the building, narrowly escaping the prying eyes of the security guard. Pops back in Jenny's car as Jenny's leaving, and they're all really excited and high on adrenaline because they've pulled off this this significant caper. I, I like this a lot. The only question I have about the setup in the lab is they have the plutonium in these jars and the appears to be behind glass. Plexiglass, yeah. Which, you know, okay. So the plexiglass is there for, uh, I guess, to stop either some combination of maybe radioactive rays or gamma rays or something. But, you know, the plutonium, it's unclear about how dangerous the plutonium that they actually have is. Is it is it that dangerous stuff that needs to be refined or is it the stuff that is, you know, more plutonium-239, which you can handle uh, a little bit. It's fascinating because you use this robotic arm to grab the plutonium and then hands you the jar and you still have it in your hand. So I guess maybe the thought is if the jars were to break, then it would be more of like a toxicity substance in the air that you would be concerned about. But it's still, it's not like they don't handle the plutonium outside of the storage where the glass is. They still walk around with it and you can hand it and then they probably use it somewhere else. So I didn't really understand what the storage mechanics and mechanisms here. But again, it's just, it's a cool scene to see an arm moving plutonium jars around. Yeah. I just didn't really understand what it was. I think it's mostly designed to be a, a device to lend some some sort of authenticity sure. to a laboratory. It, it probably, like you said, doesn't make a lot of sense, but it looks cool. Yeah. And it can fall something to do. It also, but there is, I mean, there's two other points about that. One is that you would think in a facility working with plutonium like that, that people would be wearing respirators. <laughs> and nobody's wearing respirators. Uh, nor are they really wearing, I mean, Paul at one point has like on dish gloves mm-hmm. to pick it out of the plexiglass cage, but you don't see other people doing that. So, and the security also just seems, I mean, at one point the guard says, oh yeah, it's all automated. Well, even <laughs> so, I mean, there ought to be triple strands of barbed wire and more guards and, you know, a lot more security than a couple of lock gates and some keys. But again, if there, if all that was in place, you wouldn't have a movie. No, you'd, you'd have to make the movie more of like some sort of, maybe John does an internship program and Paul works at the lab for a little while and he's now an insider threat who can bring stuff out. But that's a different movie. I like the scene that we do get. It is a lot of fun. And after, you know, Jenny and Paul, they try to decide what are they going to do with this? Jenny wants to bring the plutonium to the press and, you know, bust this story wide open. Again, Paul doesn't know who Woodward and Bernstein are, uh, much like right. Anne Frank. And... Paul, who in this scene to me comes across as a little bit of not, maybe not a full blown, you know, sociopath, but a little bit of like a, well, what if I built a bomb out of it? Wouldn't that be kind of more fun? Because then I could actually prove that this is real and the press would just ignore a bunch of high school kids. But if I built a nuclear bomb with this and brought it to the science fair and won the science fair with it, then that's a story that no one can be able to ignore. Right. He even says to her, you want a story? Write one about a kid who builds an atomic bomb. So yeah, I, I wouldn't call him a sociopath. I, I think that he's sort of like Oppenheimer at this point. Mm. This is a sort of technically sweet project that has captured his attention in the same way that John's attention at the lab is captured by doing all this fantastic stuff with lasers and magnets and plutonium. He's not really thinking, in fact, he's not thinking about the consequences at all, except in the context of helping his I guess, girlfriend at this point, uh, or wannabe girlfriend, to break a story 
for her, but I don't think he's sure. really thinking about what it means to build an atomic bomb or what would happen after the story breaks. It's all about the excitement and the moment of, of, of doing something and probably a little bit of trying to impress her because he's that kind of a guy. And it, it does work on Jenny. She Oh, yeah. She's oh, yeah. pretty excited <laughs> by this. The one thing I'll say, I'll push back a tiny little bit. I don't think he's a sociopath. I was kind of more of a, of a jest. I think he, <laughs> he has the, the allure of the science and wanting to be able to solve this problem. So he is a bit like Oppenheimer in that sense, but I will at least give Oppenheimer credit that he had some moral qualms about, you know, delivering the bomb, you know, wanting to build the project because he thought that the, they were convinced the Germans were going to build sure. it. Which was a valid reason at the time, yeah. Paul doesn't have that. Paul has wanting to expose the existence of the facility because Jenny tells him to. It's really more to him. It's just this weird like, yeah, what if I built a bomb? Not thinking, well, what if the bomb were to fall in the wrong hands or detonate it? Because Paul doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to use it to destroy the lab. He just wants to build it and then disarm it, essentially let someone else be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, he even explains to her that it's not dangerous until it's fully assembled and he has no plans to assemble it. He's just going to put the pieces together mm -hmm. and, and show them that it's possible and blow the whistle on this facility and stop the bad guys, I guess, you know, or show us, stick it to the government or whatever, whatever his motivation is. I'm happy that it happens because what we get next is one of the more fun montages I've ever seen in a movie. There's, there's this, a lot of happy-go-lucky building music. It's a, interspersed with some scenes of Paul playing soccer and clearly not being all that excited about being the goalie and, and on, and when he playing soccer. You see him reading unclassified accounts on how to build a bomb. He talks, he reads about explosive or, ordinances. Yeah, microfiche. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that was fun. I, I used to work in a library and my, I he actually really was the person who always volunteered to get things off of Microfish. I love that. He read about plutonium cores. You see him like, basically gets like a, a, a room at the high school to be able to do his, what he says was a science experiment dealing with hamsters. Raising hamsters in the dark to see if their other senses become more <laughs> acute. Yes. And I, I remember <laughs> as someone who in high school asked to do an experiment with mice, um, I basically was was told you can you can design it, but we don't allow you to build to do anything with animals because uh, it's you have to get special waivers uh, when you deal with that stuff. I guess Paul's high school is a little bit more uh, is the eighties, I guess, uh, able to do that stuff. But anyways, he reads he gets a book about how you deal with plutonium. You see him build a timer, like a timing ar an arming device. Practices building these high explosive charges for the implosion. You know, first he starts cutting a cantaloupe to try to get the shape right. Then he as he's playing soccer, oh yeah, I build something that looks like a soccer ball which if you look at a an exposed core that has the explosive lenses it does look a lot like a soccer ball that's often how i describe it in terms of that particular pattern and shape around it so he i guess convinces one of the high school's uh, computer technician lab people to build him the cutout of what a soccer ball would look like. And then he uses that to build the, the C4 charges, which he buys. This, I think, is one of the more scary things in the movie. He just buys C4 from a friend of his who's in the army. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is a problem that the movie had to solve. You need yeah. explosives to set off the plutonium. I'm not actually sure that C4 is powerful enough to do that. We'll go with it. Sure. So yeah, he just happens to have a friend who's a little few years older, who's in the army, who has got a side gig stealing C4 from government stockpiles and selling it to people. So hello, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. Timothy McVeigh. Uh, but <laughs> in any case, but it's all for the good here because he's building a bomb to show the world that, mm -hmm. you know, as he says, as he says in the previous scene, he, he wants to build the, the world's first privately built nuclear device. That's stretching it. But I, apart from him breaking into a place where he could get it, which would be even more fantastical, 
it makes sense. Yeah, he need he would need a lot more remote control cars than he actually has. I mean, he's a good MacGyver, but he's not <laughs> that good. Yeah. We see lots of other scenes. He builds a glove box uh, so he can handle the plutonium flakes, uh, get them out of the the solvent, and then he shapes the plutonium using some some you know pretty interesting ways of kind of uh, smelting it. I guess I don't know that melting it down and, and kind of making it into the sphere that he needs. Again, the montage music is the kind of thing you would see when you the kids are playing during like a scene in like the sound of music. <laughs> but overall of this, we see a lot of cool stuff here. I think you, you had something here in the notes that, about the glove box that he built. Yeah, so plutonium is pyrophoric, which means it will spontaneously ignite mm-hmm. in the presence of air. Uh, and we have had problems in the past U.S. facilities where fires and glove boxes have been incredibly destructive at Rocky Flats in Colorado in the 1960s. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of detail because it's a montage, but unless he's got nitrogen in that glove box, <laughs> as soon as the plutonium dries out, it's going to catch fire and set fire to his lab in the building, and then there goes the end of the movie. So there is a tube that's venting it to the outside, so he's contaminating his neighborhood, (laughs) which we'll just ignore for the purposes of the film. But that was sort of kind of a biggie for me in terms of, you know, this is technically not correct. Also, again, like the people in John's actual laboratory, he's not using a respirator. He's got a glove box, and he's got gloves, and even has safety glasses on at one point. But he's got nothing to protect his mouth from inhaling or ingesting plutonium, which is the way that you can that it gets in your body and gives you cancer. So it just seems like, yeah, you know, that's a, a bit of a, a bit of a scientific liberty. There. But he's a cocky kid, so maybe it makes sense. I mean, these days, uh, people not wearing masks is not really something I even uh, criticize anymore. Or like, <laughs> like, oh, that's it's not it's not that weird to me. I guess is what I mean to say. So he he builds this through this montage and I actually really did enjoy this part of the movie he's reading a bunch of literature that I you know I've come across um I'm seeing you these are all real sources you can you can check out they probably won't get you all the way that you'll be able to, to, to need for this stuff but it gets them close enough um and as we'll talk about at the end of the episode it is also literature that someone did this on his own uh, when he was when he was an undergrad uh, with the kind of the story is a little bit based off of so back at the lab John's team finally figures out that there's some missing plutonium because why is the the fission you know results the product uh the purity yeah. levels it's really low right this is kind of odd it's like there's like no plutonium in there at all and then they do this i, I love this scene when the guy one of the lab techs is like reading what's in the material and it's like it's shampoo with some uh <laughs> some metal flakes and and clearly there's something off there and this is where we get richard jenkins and his, his little cameo here where he says you know hey john your your security card was used to access the lab on this one night we have to report because something's missing and he mentions it's it's, it's a significant quantity so i'm gonna go have to report it and john's really upset by that because he's like hey we had in my old lab this happened all the time you someone just misplaced it or whatever and i think that, that was Pretty funny. They don't define it, but I actually really enjoyed this little detail. Significant quantity is a term that the I, I don't know if it's the if it's an IEA exclusive term. I know a lot of people refer to it in terms of a materials accounting, but uh, it's it's basically an amount of fissile material that if it goes missing from a storage facility or, or an enrichment plant could potentially be used to build an, a nuclear bomb. So it's it's usually it's like the minimum amount that you need to make sure never leaves your process from start to end. If a certain amount of this were to exist escape it doesn't have to be all in once it could be done in you know portions as long as it totals up um it's essentially the standard for how you build your materials accountability processes and protocols so that 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 particular amount if it were to go missing you would 
be able to detect it with sufficient amount of time in order to be able to not let someone, you know, build a nuclear weapon. And, and they don't say the amount here, but the IEA number in its open source is uh, eight kilograms of plutonium, which is about just under 18 pounds. It's a, it's a lot of it's a lot of weight there. I was just impressed that the remote control car was able to carry uh, that much out the door. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's one of those things I want to mention is that the, the amount of weight for these kinds of significant quantities probably depends a little bit on the purity levels there. But either way, he, he carries out quite a bit there. And, and then for uranium, that significant quantity amount is 25 kilograms or about 55 pounds. So that tells you you need less you know, physical mass of plutonium to generate, you know, a nuclear bomb than you would for uranium. You would need a lot more for that kind of bomb design. And this stuff, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it does matter when you're trying to put it on a missile. And I should note when 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 Richard Jenkins' character, and he, he appears later in the film well as well, confronts John, John gets really frustrated for two reasons. One is that he doesn't want his work to be interrupted. The other is that a light goes off and he doesn't tell anybody. Yeah. But he realizes because this happened on a Sunday during the lightning storm. And John's a smart guy, not smart enough to prevent this from happening, <laughs> but he realizes that that was the day of the storm. Maybe his ID badges were out of order or whatever. And he puts two and two together and realizes that Paul was at the lab previously, must have done mm-hmm. something. And, you know, was this really clever kid. There's also a previous scene again at the, at the dinner table where John whips out this game that he says a friend of his from MIT created. And it's a, it's a square box with four marbles in it. In these channels and he said you have to get the the marbles in all four corners simultaneously and he said my friend said if you can do it in under 10 minutes or five minutes or whatever it is you're a genius and paul looks <laughs> at it puts it on the table spins it and the marbles go out to the corner and john's like well i'm gonna have to get something more challenging <laughs> so so i mean he realizes that and he really this is a sort of oh shit moment i have just allowed a teenager to steal plutonium from my laboratory my career is toast. I don't want this reported. So, but it's too late. Richard Jenkins is doing the right thing as a government official. It's like, this is, I have to report this because somebody could build a bomb with this. So that again, now we're even further along. Well, eventually John does uh, report it after he kind of does a little bit of investigating on his own because they find out, you know, where Paul was making the bomb at his high school. John sees all the bomb schematics and things and says, I'm pretty impressed by what uh, what Paul was able to put together here. He's not as concerned as much that the bomb was you know made, but he's like, well, this this Paul guy is pretty good with with his bomb design there. And I I thought again, this is kind of fascinating because he mentions, well, it's probably given the amount of plutonium that he stole and the bomb schematics, it's about a 50 kiloton yield, give or take. Which look, maybe this is really nitpicky for me, but um, usually the people who you know purify the uranium are also not the same people who know how to read a bomb schematic. Maybe there's some some people who can do a little bit of both, but normally I've seen those jobs are, are pretty separated here. But John seems to be someone who maybe reads his own Scientific America and kind of knows a little bit more about all of this. But he's able to put together that there's some pretty serious stuff going on here. They're inside of his little make, Paul's makeshift lab. People are walking around in these, uh, you know, hazmat suits and using Geiger counters and everything. But again, right? No, no masks, no respirators. Uh, yeah, exactly. they were wearing Tyvek hazmat suits but and, and goggles, but no masks. They're picking up with tongs the highly radioactive plutonium container that Paul has helpfully sealed up in a bag saying, do not open, <laughs> contaminate it. John walks wearing 
nothing special whatsoever. So apparently inhaling a little bit of plutonium is no big deal for these people. It, it reminds me of that uh, episode of The Simpsons with Radioactive Man, and he's tied to in a nuclear, nuclear plant, and there's a bunch of radioactive substances coming his way, and he, they're all told to put on their goggles, and he gets covered by this stuff, and he just Radioactive Man yells, the, the goggles, they do nothing. My eyes, the goggles do nothing. <laughs> if they're not wearing respirators, yeah, goggles don't really help that much. But across the state in uh, in New York City, I believe, uh, there's a science fair. Paul's really excited by this. He's ready to unve- unveil his invention to the world. He's there under the guise that it's a science experiment with dealing with hamsters, but he's going to just basically announce his booth and say, I built a bomb. And everyone's going to, you know, I guess believe him. I don't know how you would prove that. I could make a pretty cool looking thing that looks like a bomb, but I don't, again, he's not like he's going to test it. He's just going to say that it's there. But anyways, there are people there who might be able to help him with that. There's a bunch of these really highly competitive science kids. They're scanning the room with this really high powered, like listening device to check people out. I knew some of these kids in high school. I was on, I did some, uh, some STEM stuff, some, uh, I think it's Jet and some other kind of programs. I remember uh, when I was a kid, these kids, they hear Paul and Jenny talking about the nuclear bomb and they are pretty excited to meet this guy. They're more excited by Jenny. But oh yeah, because yeah, Jenny's a pretty girl walking around, and they're who they are. Yeah, <laughs> I I did love this scene a lot because when they meet the kids and they're asking about what their science experiments are, there's this one kid who says, "I froze some toads in a freezer," and then Paul says, "For what?" And the guy's like, "I don't have to tell you that. What do you mean?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 all very that that part is very fun and and very believable. What the kids are scanning, I guess, with this this not a boom mic, but some sort of special microphone. They're scanning the crowd and just listening to what everybody's saying to try to get the the upshot on what their competition is. The and edge. they home in on Paul and Jenny and and they're they're laying out their plan. And Paul says, Am I leaving anything out? And Jenny says, just the part where we get shot for treason. And their ears go up. It's like, oh, we need to know more about these kids, you know, what's going on here. So but they mm-hmm. but Paul and Jenny don't tell them anything when they meet in person. So they're sort of they're stuck. How are they going to figure out? And I guess until he unveils it. As the science fair is going on or they're getting set up, John flies into New York City, rendezvous with a Lieutenant Colonel Conroy from the Defense Nuclear Agency, who is John Mahoney, mm-hmm. uh, Martin Crane from Fraser. And Conroy asks John, how big a bang are we talking about? And John replies, 50 kilotons, give or take. And Conroy's like, uh, that's big enough to take out a city, right? <laughs> and John's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 pretty big. Um, it's not the megaton, you know, city destroying weapons, but it's a fifty is pretty big. It's a city center leveling. It could destroy a good chunk of New York City for sure. It's three times plus larger than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. So absolutely, yeah. it, it's big. It's it's one of those things when you're talking about nuclear weapons. Everything is every nuclear weapon is large. Even the small tactical ones are larger than any conventional weapon. It's just when you start to talk about because I I've been in I watched some of these movies where they'll just casually say. Yeah, this is a 500 megaton bomb. Um, it's pretty big, and it is like, all right, well, uh, that that's that's like an asteroid impact. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> but okay, but you're, you're right. But this, so they're in. You know, the kids are trying to figure out. So Paul and Jenny are back in their hotel room, and as we discover, the uh, inquisitive science nerds are listening with another set of headphones through the wall. Jenny's preparing her article for the school newspaper, and she's running it by Paul, and she says. How's this? Paul Stevens, a high school student from Ithaca, New York, unveiled a homemade atomic bomb at the 45th annual science fair today, thereby becoming the first private citizen to join the nuclear club. And Paul says, 
if I'm in the nuclear club, do I get a jacket? I love and, that. And he says suggestively, you can get anything you want. <laughs> and just as they're like starting to make out on the bed, Conroy and John and a bunch of people from the nuclear emergency search team burst into the room. Paul sits up. This is probably the most unrealistic thing for me. Paul sits up and says, hi, Dr. Matthewson. <laughs> like, it's just nothing at all that this guy would track him across the state and show up in his hotel room as he's kissing his girlfriend. And boy, you know, Conroy and John are really angry. Again, Paul doesn't seem surprised. John demands to know what the hell you think you're doing, to which Paul cheekily responds, <laughs> I thought we might start with some kissing and then move into the fancy stuff, which is hilarious. I mean, yeah. there are really, really, really funny lines. Um, Jenny is pissed off that these people have invaded the room and not just interrupted her with her boyfriend. And she becomes this high school journalist and mm-hmm. really starts asserting her constitutional rights and demanding to know the charges to which Colonel Mahoney, and not Colonel Mahoney's his name, Colonel Conway <laughs> starts, you know, railing them off. And again, the kids in the other room are listening to all this. So they've put two and two together and they know what's going on. And Paul refuses to tell them where the bomb is. And he keeps trying to play games. He says he wants to win the science fair first. John takes Paul out in the hallway. He's trying to defuse the situation. And they're walking the hallway and you see like FBI agents in the background to make sure nobody runs away. And he's really trying to impress Paul with the degree of danger that he's in. He says, they don't care how old you are or how cute. They're gorillas. They can hurt you. You try to tough it out with them, they'll lock you in a room somewhere and throw away the room. Mm -hmm. Paul finally relents and he agrees to give the bomb to the government. But again, only after it's judged and he wins the science fair. And John says, you're joking. He says, no, did you see the junk they've got down there? (laughs) And John says, Paul, forget the science fair. It's over. No more science fair. Look, this is top secret stuff. Nobody sees this. Not ever. You could start a war for Christ's sake. Now stop screwing around before it's too late. So Little by little, Paul is starting to realize the severity of the situation that he has created for himself, and he relents. Sure, if he brought the bomb to the science fair, I'm sure what would happen was he would be immediately arrested and or shot, and someone would take the bomb, like someone from the FBI or Nest or something. But he's clearly trying to negotiate his his path here, and... At a certain point, he does decide to bring them to the car, the trunk of the car, where the bomb is, is kept. But when he opens up the boot, there's nothing there. It's missing. And it must have been those kids, right? The ones that were listening uh, through the wall. And <laughs> My turns... daughter figured that out right away. Yeah, yeah I like that. Uh, so they, they was them. And they, uh, much like how electrical storms are the one uh, bane for security systems, the one weakness for military and FBI is you just turn the lights off and you use a couple of fire extinguishers. And that completely overwhelms them. And get taken out and they escape the hotel they're handed the bomb because the kids had it and they start running i guess they're mostly concerned about being arrested they still want to expose the lab i thought at first that it was paul was starting to be concerned with the potential consequences of the bomb as you mentioned you know describing everything but i guess he's still mostly he's you know now that they're away their plan is still to find some way to expose uh, kind of what's what's going on there so they get on a bus on their way back to, to Ithaca and they actually see on a little TV on the bus that their faces are on the news and they're told that they're insider threats they're criminals for stealing nuclear material from from a government lab they don't say like it's a government lab that's hidden as a secret one it's just that they went and stole it from somewhere else the, the headline is teenage terrorists yeah yeah <laughs> by the way you you skipped one of my favorite lines when when the kids are escaping, uh, helping them to escape from the hotel and they're giving them money so they can get a cab or a bus <laughs> and get out of town, Jenny says to one of them, 
why are you helping us? One of the kids turns to her and says, because my dear, there's more to life than freezing toads. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, if only... Oh, kids, kids will be kids, right? <laughs> if only more people took that to heart. <laughs> so they escape with the with the bomb. They're on their way over, and then they, there's a couple quick, you know, B-roll shots and a few interviews with people on the news. And that guy from earlier who got pranked with the little explosive device, he <laughs> turns to the camera and says, "Paul Stevens, very disturbed person, definitely the criminal type." Yeah. I love that. Shouldn't have messed with with this kid. Yeah. <laughs> so so Conroy, the military uh, Fraser dad, the Nest team, who are the people who get called in to help look for nuclear material. They're not necessarily I guess some of them are trained to be bomb disposal ordnance people, but really they're the people that they'll be working next week during the inauguration, uh, flying around. Sometimes they'll be walking around with in, in, in plain clothes with uh, radiation detection. They'll be doing helicopter runs, all kinds of stuff. They're at the Super Bowl. They're at all these major events uh, checking this out. I always think it's so fascinating because there are some people who are permanent nest members, but a lot of them are just people who work at different labs. And then when there's an emergency, they get helicoptered in. Right, right. It's like kind of like the National Guard in some way. Nest figures in the conclusion of The Peacemaker when they're trying mm-hmm. to track down the bomb. George Clooney, Nicole Kidman, and they got helicopters and sensors flying around. So yeah, it's a real deal. And uh, it was actually set up to stop threatened nuclear terrorism in the 1970s and you know, still exists today. And, and uh, it's very effective against uh, kids that steal nuclear weapons and nuclear material. They show up at Paul's house uh, along with John and start giving the mom really the kind of the fifth degree. You know, what are your kids' political views? What are what's going on? Where is the weapon? It's frightening. It's alarming. It's totally unexpected. I should note at this point too that Conroy introduces himself to Elizabeth, Paul's mother, as being from U.S. Army Delta Force, where mm-hmm. previously he told John that he was with Defense Nuclear Agency, which made more sense. So I'm not sure what happened there, but <laughs> <laughs> his identity got changed at some point and it wasn't rectified completely throughout the script. It's one of those things. He didn't think that she knew what the other one was, but she knows cause she's seen a few uh, Delta Force movies. Maybe. Could be. Very Maybe popular at the time. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's moving. Paul eventually calls in. He calls home at a, from a payphone saying, look, I've um, everything's going to be okay. But he, he essentially negotiates a plan to bring the bomb to the lab as long as John has a written confession to announce what's going on at, at the lab. He wants to be able to bring it in, take some photos, uh, help Jenny's article. His mom is freaking out. Like She confronts John because these people are in her house and she's really pissed off and she wants him to do something. And she doesn't think Paul did anything wrong. And John's like, well, he did do some things that were against the law. And his mother says, well, maybe there's a higher law. And he says, what are you, what are you saying? He did it for ethics, for reasons of conscience. What do you think he is, Galileo? <laughs> He's a kid. Kids don't have reasons. They just do things. And then she demands that John do something to get these people that have you know, invaded her home and are after a kid out. And he says, well, what am I supposed to do? And she says, hold them up. That's your field, isn't it? And he looks really kind of stung by that remark. Like it's really starting to hit him that, you know, he's not this sort of scientist that's just working on higher things, but there's actually a reason for this work. And he also seems to be growing concerned about both Elizabeth and Paul. Now, I, I should say at this point that we've seen very little of Elizabeth and John together. There's one scene where Paul's cutting up the cantaloupe where they come in from, I don't know, maybe they were watching a football game in the other room or maybe they were out on a date. But you have a sense that there's a relationship that's developed, but you don't see it. And honestly, there's not a ton of chemistry between John Lithgow and Jill Eikenberry. So it's just sort of taken as a given. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because of that, you also don't see a lot of any kind of budding relationship between 
John and Paul, although, although that's apparently happening too. But at this point, he starts to realize that for all practical purposes, his family, or at least these people that he knows that have become important to him, are enmeshed in something that he's involved in that he needs to take some kind of stand to deal with it, even though his career is on the line. And there is a great line where Paul is on the phone with his mother and his mother asks, Paul, did you build an atomic bomb? And Paul's only a little one, yeah, which is very fun. It would have been really funny. It's like only a tactical one. But no, it's a pretty it's a pretty big bomb here. And uh, I do think it's fun when they reference the plan about having the sign statement from John and everything. He refers to it as the gadget. Another one of those fun little references there, similar to uh, Rico Fermi's you know, styrofoam cups as a reference. The, the gadget is the was the code for the Manhattan Project talking about the bomb device. Like, you know, you talk about the gadget. You don't talk about building an atomic bomb. Clearly, Paul has done his research. He probably watched a couple um, old nuke movies. So so eventually, yeah, John convinces Conroy to to let them follow Paul's plan. They're going to get the gadget that way. So, I mean, Conroy, the military guy is like, you know, we got to we got to deal with this. This is a real serious threat. And he and he references this line that Paul said, yeah, you haven't even watching the TV. I'm a terrorist. And he's clearly mm-hmm. making fun mm-hmm. of himself. But the military, Conroy is taking it seriously. And John says, you people really live in your own world, don't you? And Conroy says, well, we don't have the luxury of living in yours. And John at that point looks even more serious and determined to do something because now suddenly he realizes that Paul is kind of a marked man. Uh, Jenny starts making phone calls on, on a payphone. Hey, payphones. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, starts to ask friends to essentially do like a, what are those called? Like telephone trees where one person calls someone and that person calls a person. And, and it's mostly, it sounds like what the plan is, um, we, you know, we'll call the press, we'll get them there, but also tell as many people from town as possible to come to this lab right now so they can be witnesses to whatever is going to happen. I don't want to say stor- storm the lab, but, you know, get everybody <laughs> you possibly can, you know, over there. And in John and Paul, they seem, you know, friendly. Friendly there, because as you mentioned, John is starting to not only be concerned about maybe his role in the military industrial complex and the relationship of his science work to bombs as the military are pressing him on, like, don't you realize what's happening here? You know, this is the stuff that you made, now this is in the hands of the kid. But also, he's, as you mentioned again, he's concerned about Paul and kind of what could potentially happen with Paul. So, but they, they follow through, you know, with their plan. John John asks, uh, you know, why are you trying to push for publicity with with the lab? What what are you trying to accomplish? And Paul says, well, this is a great place. We pay for it. It's really interesting. They should give tours to everybody here, like Disneyland. And I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, Paul's clearly a little concerned. He's he's scared. He mentions a couple points that he's scared here. He knows that there are people like the FBI and the Nest teams that are walking around with sniper rifles. You get a couple shots of some of these uh, snipers, and they're all pretty confident that they can shoot this guy. <laughs> they said they'll put one behind his ear if I get a good shot and you tell me to do so. So it's very, you know, it's a tinderbox here. We eventually learn when they walk through a scanner, as we, you know, the one that we heard about earlier in the movie, the Nest team is able to figure out, they they see inside the bomb package, they see that the core and the arming mechanisms are not ready. Everything is separated. It's, it's, it's a demated bomb, and therefore it's not armed. So their thought there is, okay, well, we're just going to go in and, and take it now. Um, which I thought was interesting that Paul didn't come with the weapon armed. But I guess, again, his, his thought was he wasn't trying to destroy anything. But I guess he did not realize that the scanner could see inside the device. Probably only th- the thought there was that it would detect the radiation and know mm-hmm. that it was hot, but not that it was not armed. Maybe, maybe. And, and it's a fun point here where one of the Nest people is looking at the screen as the scanner does its work. And he says, 
<laughs> and he's pointing out, oh, here's the this, here's the that. He says, nice design, actually. It's like, it's like yeah, they're yeah. all really impressed with what Paul did. Yeah, yeah and I, I trust the NES people to understand uh, a bomb design because their job is to, you know, right. dismantle it as well. So one of the FBI there, he really comes in with a gun. He comes in hot. Uh, this guy is very scary. But he, he comes in and essentially tries to steal, you know, just take it away, which is a pretty reasonable thing. Just come in and grab it. And he would have been able to do so. But John intervenes. He says, you know, hey, you're not going to, you know, hurt this kid. You know, let him do whatever he needs to do. And at some point they start saying, don't shoot because there's plutonium. Paul runs in the lab. He hides behind the equipment. And he realizes that, shoot, they're going to get me. They're all here. They've all got guns. So he arms the device. He puts batteries into it, kind of like he's loading a shotgun, but he's putting you know, he's putting the batteries in to get the arming mechanism ready to go. And then he takes the plutonium core, puts it into the explosive package, and then turns the arming key and sets it for two minutes, but doesn't turn it on. He just, right. or, you know, start the timer. He just, he's there. And he's visibly nervous. He's visibly nervous throughout this. So the first time that he's really, you get a sense that he understands the magnitude of what he's caught up in. He feels like one of the hamsters in his cage. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a quarter <laughs> animal here. I always thought at this point, once they realize, oh, he, he's armed the device, why they didn't just storm it or already shoot him. Because they said that they had a clear shot, but they were worried about hitting the plutonium jars and all of that stuff but you know i don't know you i would have compared the risk of plutonium toxicity leaks versus 50 kiloton bomb but anyways again maybe i'm just being i'm the sociopath because these people are concerned about (laughs) a kid as well and really john is yeah i think you're right in the in the real world that should happen but on the other hand look at what happened at the capitol i think Mm. a lot of us would have anticipated having known in the abstract about an event like that or an attack like that that there would have been a lot more people shot and they weren't Right. I, I wasn't thinking about going down this road, but is it white privilege? <laughs> is, he, <laughs> is it he's a white kid and or is it that they're I mean, it doesn't for the logic of the movie to work that that can't happen. But is it also that you're right, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but maybe there's there is something holding them back there. And it's not just, you know, let's say implausible screenwriting. Paul references this when when he, you know, John comes over and starts talking to him uh, and says, you know, hey, you know, look, I don't want you to die. Let's figure out how we can get the bomb, you know, kind of away from you. You know, Paul says, look, me arming this device is what's keeping me alive. And he talks about it's deterrence, right? It's mutually assured destruction. I'm going to turn this device and you won't able to be able to disarm it. Um, This is what's keeping keeping me alive. So maybe there's something to that there. But before John does go there, he does get an earful from the military, you know, liaison that's there from wherever he happens to be working. Um, He's there and he's going to make it a pretty strong point there to John about what the difference between what John has built and and worked on and kind of just generally how you need to be understanding what what the full context is here. Basically, Conroy is trying to get John to go in there and help them kill Paul. Right. John starts to say, but I'm not a and Conroy's what? A killer? A killer? Just what the bloody hell do you think you've been working at all these years? What do you think all this is for? Your own personal amusement to stimulate you intellectually? You are what you are, doctor, a son of a bitch like the rest of us, which echoes what Kenneth Bainbridge, one of the scientists on the mm. Manhattan Project, said at the Trinity test in 1945 after the test was successful. Now we're all yeah. sons of bitches. It was a raw, real realization of what they were all caught up in for better or for worse. And again, you know, John is on this journey of self-reflection. He's starting, the pieces are coming together. He's realizing that, holy cow, I'm not just this supreme scientist that's working in, you know, in a white suit in a laboratory. I'm building 
freaking weapons of mass destruction. And there's one sitting right here, you know, that, yeah. that is made from material that I created. And, and not only him as a, the jack of all trades, plutonium purifier slash weapons designer, apparently he builds this stuff and, but it wasn't built by him. It was built by, you know, an innocent kid, you know, from his perspective, I'm sure that even hits home a little bit more. But as John and Paul have these very philosophical discussions about, you know, what it means to, to build these things, because he, again, John's impressed by the different components that Paul uses to build his reflector and his, his timbre and, and his army mechanisms and his neutron generators and all of that. He's pretty pretty excited that he does all these things. But then they'd have this conversation about, you know, though all this is mutual shared destruction, that's why I have the bomb so that no one will come in here. And then John has this great retort. Paul's concerned whether or not he's crazy enough to actually turn the key. And John says, well, that's the problem with deterrence, isn't it? You know, basically whether or not he would do this. And it's a, it's a fascinating question here. I don't think Paul's too sure that he's going to be able to get out alive. Ultimately, John's able to get the bomb back. And as they're slowly walking out of the, the room, now John basically throws his hat in, in the ring here and says, now I'm holding the bomb with his finger on the key and tries to use it to negotiate his way out, right? He says, what, um, now who wants to play? <laughs> to, you know, yeah. no one in particular. I love that. Um, even though he knows, you know, the only way to win is not to play. But I don't know. He should have known that anyways uh, when it comes to nuke stuff. So he threatens to turn the key if anyone shoots him. And I, I guess their plan is to potentially kind of walk out and maybe drop the bomb and then run. I don't, I don't know really what they were going to do. He doesn't know that the people are showing up and the media is going to show up. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, it's not clear exactly how that part would work but he's he's desperate to get at least paul out of the building alive yeah and he's concerned mostly about the fact now that at least he gets to publish uh his work because yeah he jokes he says well now i can publish i think i just blew my security clearance you know there's got to be work for an unemployed nuclear weapons designer somewhere he says so. i love that and uh, probably uh, there's there's a lot of um uh, fun people who used to work on this stuff uh, at least if you're not oppenheimer who's had trouble getting a job kind of afterwards because of security clearance issues there's plenty of places there out there um they name buildings after uh like the fermi and everyone else um <laughs> But here's the problem. The, there's radiation from the, the bomb, from the neutron flux, some sort of science uh, garble that sets off the arming mechanism on the little uh, timer clock device that he has here. And now the bomb is armed. And it was originally meant to be a certain amount of time. I'm not sure two what minutes. it was. Two minutes, two minutes. But then it became more than that. But then it's quickly escalating and, you know, in, in a more uh, exponential way. So everyone's concerned by it. And unfortunately, at the same time, now all of the townsfolk and the media, because of of what Jenny did are now rushing to this place, which was called um, the, the lab. The secret lab was called Metatomics, which I, I always love that name. What are they going to do now? The bomb cannot be you know, easily disarmed. It's not like you just can unturn the key. Something needs to, the, needs to be deactivated and they want to know what to do. Paul suggests taking it to a nearby quarry, which is kind of far away from town. But then I guess they thought, well, shoot, that's it's the 40 kiloton bomb, 50 kiloton bomb. It's not, not far enough away uh, because of the plutonium being a special stuff. I guess Paul didn't realize that this stuff was as powerful as it was. And it gets back to this question, is really, is that is that going to be that much bigger of a bomb? What kind of yield did Paul think that he was making? Do you think he was building just a small... He mentions one kiloton at one point. Is that he what he thought? One okay. kiloton. He said one kiloton in the quarry wouldn't really hurt anybody. I mean, it would, but it wouldn't destroy the town unless the wind was blowing the wrong way. But, sure. you know, when John says it could be 50 to 70 kilotons, Paul blanches like, oh my Ooh. God, this is, this is really, oh my God. 
I, what am I doing here? Yeah, so it's it's pretty dangerous here. But, you know, the movie wraps up pretty quickly because there's some fun little bomb disposal technician comedy, which I really enjoyed. There's a, literally a, a ticking the timer coming down. They all have to cut the wire at the right time. There's this fun thing where they're like, they have to like look for a, there's like five or six wires. So everybody has to have their hands on a wire. They realize at the last second that Paul doesn't have any sort of pliers and there's no pliers to cut the wire. But where does Paul find some? The, the trusty nail clipper, which apparently he pocketed after it was was given to him by Jenny at the beginning of the movie, held on to it to break into the glove compartment, John's car, and also to open the security cabinet at Metatomics when he was breaking in the first time and, and glitch the camera system. And now the <laughs> uh, trusty nail clippers is used to, uh, to disarm the bomb by cutting through the wire at just the right instant. And yeah, it stops. You can see the timer. It's not at zero anymore. And then there's a great quick scene where everyone's calmed down. And then you hear like a boo, which was very funny. Paul had used strobe flash units mm-hmm. as as the in, in the wiring system and they charge up. And one of the concerns about disarming it was they could discharge like a flash does, even if you don't press the button. So even after they cut the wires, then they discharge. So it probably would have gone off. At least that's the assumption that I have. And they, they dismantled it in just the nick of time. And the one thing I, I, I thought was interesting here is that you read uh, accounts of people who are these expo- explosive ordnance uh, disposal teams and those that get special training on the, the nuclear package. A lot of them are trained on how to do you know biochem, conventional weapons, but you know you get a special clearance certificate if you if you do this. A lot of them are, are Army and, and Navy, if I remember right, these kind of EOD, EOD uh, technicians, um, but they got deployed to different places. There's a great account of this about the Damascus incident in Arkansas of them being deployed to help to kind of disarm bombs um, in case the warheads were still alive. But it is often the first thing they do do try to do is remove the batteries uh, and, and disconnect the batteries from the the army mechanism because if you don't have anything to set off the explosives then the bomb doesn't work um, that's one of the things that the batteries do so i i do think if people were to watch this movie and be like ha huh, battery disconnecting what would that mean like that's actually one of the first things that they try to do before they even try to get to the core the key thing here is what's going to happen to john what's going to happen to paul they're going to be in trouble there was a threat earlier about them maybe getting shot and, and killed to plug any sort of information leaks that may be at the lab. But because of Jenny's quick thinking and having everyone there and they open up the garage door there and then every and people see what's happening, the military just lets them, you know, leave. And everything seems to be okay. John uh, gets away. Paul gets away. And everything seems to be, you know, more or less, more or less over. There's no discussion of like criminal charges or anything being brought up. It's just, I don't know why the choice here is extrajudicial killing uh, on site of a person versus, you know, letting them go. And it's not anywhere in the middle. But that's just nitpicking here. The point, the point is that the movie ends. Paul and Jenny embrace. Um, they kiss. I guess John and Elizabeth might have a relationship now uh, that they can get, get together. And the movie ends. So it's a nice little happy ending there at the end it is a little when you think about it it's a little hard to understand but maybe one way to think about it is that deterrence works and doesn't works paul's and john's efforts to use nuclear deterrence to try to get out of the situation alive works and then the bomb arms itself and then they've got a disarmament Mm-hmm. And then Colonel Conroy threatens to shoot John if he opens up the door to, as he said, there's too many secrets. You can't kill all of us. He threatens to shoot him, which would be kind of a form of deterrence or compelling. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't work. He doesn't shoot him. The guy, the FBI guy who threatened to shoot him before doesn't shoot him. Then the doors open. Everybody's there. So 
at that point, I mean, the threat's gone. Why would you shoot him and execute him in front of all these people? Then you've got an even bigger problem because they've got to explain why this plutonium facility is in the middle of a, basically a residential neighborhood in Ithaca, New York, right. and you know where this plutonium is coming from and all of that. Um, why Conroy and his aide split in a helicopter? It's like it's like they're all embarrassed and they just sort of agreed. And apparently they're just going to give up. And I don't know, maybe they're going to move this to an actual government facility or maybe it will be shut down completely. But it's a happy ending in the sense that nothing bad happened to anybody except maybe the, the colonel is going to get demoted because he didn't. I mean, he sort of did his job. They found the bomb and, and it was disarmed. But, you know, he didn't prevent lots of other things from happening. Well, I just want to know if that one kid who was the one who was the victim of the prank at the beginning of the movie. I want to know if he won the science fair. That's 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 the only thing that's not wrapped up for me is is whatever happened to that kid and did he go on to become like a, a villain? He's like, well, shoot, Paul built a nuclear bomb. I'm gonna build a thermonuclear bomb. And maybe that's in the sequel. Maybe that's in the sequel. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's sort of co- it's sort of you sort of miss it in passing, but outside, um, John rendezvous with Elizabeth after they open the gates, mm. and he says it's okay. I did something. So, you know, he did actually, he changed. He clearly will not be doing that work anymore, even if the government would have him, which it most certainly won't. Yeah, all is well that ends well. The arms race continues for a few more years, but (laughs) at least it's not happening in Ithaca, New York. Well, maybe he joined uh, the the board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists afterwards, and <laughs> and is I think he might have he could I could see him being one of those that have turned from that work and then have now started to kind of focus a little bit more on how to calm things down. He could be more like a a bit of a Bruce Blair or um, even Oppenheimer in his later years. Um, Hans Bethe, maybe, 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 and hopefully Annie is a journalist and still employed. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's really into blogging now. <laughs> Let's get super critical here about the the nuke plot discussion stuff. There's not a lot because we covered a good number of it during the discussion of the plot itself. But I think it's, we can't you know talk about this movie without talking about some of the real life stories that this was based off of. Um, and, and one in particular, I know you wanted to, to bring up was the story about John Aristotle Phillips. Yes. So John Aristotle Phillips was an undergraduate at Princeton University who in 1976 for a term paper in physics, designed a, an atomic bomb by himself. He turned in his 40-page paper. Freeman Dyson was one of his advisors, and I think he said at one point he would have given him an A on it. Portions of it are classified, and it did, it did raise the interest of government officials, and apparently some officials from Pakistan contacted him <laughs> trying to get details of, of his work. He wrote a book about it. He also he kind of overplayed his hand. He wanted to star in a movie of his own life. It never got made. And the book, ironically, was published on the same day as the uh, Three Mile Island incident. So oh. it kind of got lost in the in the massive media coverage. Is this the book Mushroom, the true story of the A-bomb kid? Yeah, I think it's the absolutely true story of the A-bomb yeah. kid. Yeah, yeah. So he did that. And this was apparently one of the influences for for that, uh, for for this story. Uh, Brinkman mentioned that he, he, he heard about this story and he said um, he was afraid that people would say that I ripped off the subject, that I trivialized it, that I took a less serious view, that I just used the subject to get some laughs. But I don't know, I think he 
does a pretty decent job of uh, drawing on it without you know, relying too heavily on it. And the other thing too is, is that Phillips never had access to plutonium. He never built a bomb. He said he, he built like a prototype of certain components of it, but he didn't have the access to the plutonium. Fortunately, the access to fissile material is still really hard to do uh, to get access to that. That is the that is the choke point for anybody that wants to develop a nuclear weapon, whether it's a, a terrorist organization or a state, you have to have material. So all of these notions that there are designs out there, whether it's Aristotle Phillips or some of the other stuff we'll talk about later, you have to have the, the, the material, the fissile material to make it explode. And without that, you don't have a bomb. So, and, and that has been always the province of states. It's much too complicated for individuals or even well-funded terrorist organizations to undertake on their own. You have to have at the very least uh, a state sponsor. So that's one reason why proliferation and nuclear terrorism is not as perhaps widespread as one would have imagined. It's because you don't have access to all the components that you need. But if laser isotope separation <laughs> of plutonium ever became a serious thing and Iran is said to be working on it, you know, you can reduce the uh, energy requirements and the space requirements and the technology requirements such that you might actually be able to develop it if you got your hands on the right kind of uranium. The only other story that I, I wanted to mention here is, and I don't remember the gentleman's name. Uh, I should have pulled this earlier, but there was a, a very famous story of a guy. Um, I think the way that's characterized in the media was the Boy Scout who built the nuclear reactor. David Hahn. Was David there. Hahn, right. And, and he built a, a working, more or less working, you know, nuclear power reactor, very small scale in his like shed. He didn't actually build it. He was trying to. He got an atomic badge when they were still giving them out in the Boy Scouts. And uh, he tried to build a breeder reactor in his parents' mm-hmm. garden shed using, in part, Amory CM241 and trying to get enough of this stuff together. He didn't build the reactor. He did create a massive radioactive mess that the EPA and others had to come in and clean up. He got hurt. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was exposed to some radiation, and but he became famous. He, he, there was a book written about him, and there's a little video online that we can pop up with the podcast. Very good article about him as well that I can reference later. It was in Harper's Magazine in the 1970s. But uh, yeah, there are people from time to time to try to do this on their own. It's been a while. The worst we've gotten so far was that one kid who built uh, a clock and then got arrested. Um, <laughs> well, that was like a oh, couple I of years. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the closest that we've gotten, fortunately, to this stuff. Um, but the other thing that it draws, this movie uh, draws on real life, is the backlash that some of the public may have to certain national labs or plutonium reprocessing in particular. And uh, I have a quick little bit of stories here, but you really are the person who can talk about this from more of like you know work that you actually did. During the Cold War, when this movie came out, there were quite a bit of plutonium reprocessing facilities. Um, you know, the, the the big one during the Cold War was at Hanford, uh, where plutonium was made, plutonium-239. There were, I think at its peak in 1963, there were nine breeder reactors and then five reprocessing plants. And these facilities made roughly about 57 tons of plutonium. The the sources that I've saw, it is I most of what you needed for the 60,000 nuclear weapons that the United States had in its stockpile. This 
site is decommissioned today. It's one of the huge challenges that they have with 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 cleanup and a lot of environmental issues, lots of problems with with leaks from from the Hanford site. There was a very famous leak of radioactive iodine um, that got into grass. Cows ate the grass. Cows made milk. Milk caused a lot of really severe damage to children and and, and others uh, in the area. So there's lots of kind of issues with with plutonium reprocessing plants and and also enrichment sites. You know these things are very hotly contested. Uh, they're controversial because they're handling this dangerous material. Lots of things that may have inspired you know Jenny to have the reaction that she did. You know there's there's the Rikasho plant in Japan. That's a reprocessing facility that's been talked about for what 30, 20 years. Um, they've been protesting a particular facility. It finally last year got permission to move ahead, but now it's been delayed again for three, I think three more years. This is a facility, particularly after Fukushima, a lot of people are, are talking, you know, you mentioned, you briefed about this earlier. Why does Japan need to do this? Nuclear power used to be a big priority, but it's not as much these days. Now you're, if you do this facility, you're left with all of this potentially very quickly turned into nuclear weapon material. If you just process it a little bit better, a little more purity, people aren't concerned about the plutonium proliferation problem. They're concerned about the potential environmental hazards, at least the people that are living nearby. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've worked on in terms of these kind of local movements? You mentioned a couple of that at the beginning of the episode. Right. Well, I mentioned the Snake River Alliance, which is still an active organization based in Idaho, worked to kill the Specialized Setup Separation Project, which is very much like what John is working on uh, with in the movie. And then there's the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability overall that grew up around Department of Energy nuclear weapons facilities scattered around the country. People realizing at Hanford, at Los Alamos, at Livermore, at other places at Oak Ridge and Tennessee, that they were all dealing with the same issues, just at different facilities. And they were all, of course, dealing with fighting the government to get access to records, to shut things down, to make things safer. And so they combined their forces in an alliance that was my, my second job when I came to Washington, D.C. They've been very successful over the years in checking what the Department of Energy has been able to do uh, with regard to nuclear weapons production and testing, and also making sure that sites are cleaned up uh, once they're polluted. I, I should mention as well that, you know, I, I said, you know, nobody would ever put one of these facilities in a suburb, which is true today. However, during the Cold War, we did have a lot of much smaller facilities that were sort of auxiliaries to the larger plants that were set up to do various discrete tasks. And the one I'm thinking of in particular is called the Albacraft Shop in Oxford, Ohio, not far from Miami University, which machined uranium for the, for the Fernald plant. And Fernald made uranium slugs that then went into fuel the reactor at the Savannah River site in South Carolina. And I think they might have also done some fueling. For Hanford, and that fuel ended up producing plutonium or tritium, depending on what reactor it was in. And that facility was just a tiny, relatively tiny shop, not properly ventilated, not properly signed, sitting in a residential neighborhood. It operated for a number of years, and then it shut down, and people only found out about it in the 1980s when the government went back to see if there were any health hazards and discovered that there were quite a lot, because the government hadn't enforced any kind of regulations at the time. And they spent quite a lot of money cleaning it up. And there's all sorts of other sites like that around the country. So who knows what was sparking Jenny's activism in this regard, other than the sort of general outrage that the government has to do things according to the rules, as she says at one point in the movie. I I don't get a sense that she knows a lot about nuclear weapons issues, but since they're talking about nuclear weapons 
specifically at that school. Maybe she does. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's possible. It's definitely on their on their minds. Uh, they probably got a, a quiz earlier that week on the topic area. Um, that is, that is a fascinating story because it's really is part of what inspired. Uh, it, it seems Marshall Brickman to want to talk about a lot of these issues. We'll wrap up here with what I call the parking lot movie discussion section, which is back in the day when I used to go to movie theaters growing up with friends. Ah, movie theater. Remember those? You would sit in a room with people without a mask. You know, afterwards, before we went our separate ways, we would talk about the movie we saw uh, in, the, in the parking lot. And uh, one thing I wanted to queue up here is, you know, what was uh, the overall kind of message or theme of, of this movie? Because it's fun in the sense of there's a lot of comedy to it. There's a, a story about a loose nuke. So you get that kind of adventure uh, side of things here. Although you don't think that maybe Paul's a villain, but you still, there's a bomb that is out there and people are trying to deal with it. What at least what Marshall Brickman mentioned, the director, he said that he was fascinated uh, with the two worlds that exist in America now. The one of ordinary citizens like the kid in the movie who has all of the problems of adolescence, and then the other world, which is the world of the military-industrial complex. And within that world, the sort of high priesthood of nuclear weapon planners and designers. You read through the books, and these guys are really creepy, scary, and fascinating, and very brilliant, and very elitist, very condescending to the rest of the world, and divorced from any sort of sense of consequence, from any sort of sense of ethics and morality. And he said it would be a good idea to approach the bomb as another consumer item, something that is, you know, in a sense that it is, you know, provides lots of jobs and work. So I thought that was fascinating. The movie does a decent job, I think, of introducing some of that, you know, John's motives and the people that are involved from it more from a commercial, you know, standpoint, but also how it takes these kind of moments of the crisis that before he starts to realize a little bit about, about what the consequences of what his actions are. And also for, for Paul, too. So I want to ask you, you know, how well do you think the movie pulls? this particular effort off uh very well and i i suspect it probably did it better in some initial drafts of the script i'd be really interested to see drafts before they went to shoot to see what was cut because i suspect there was more about the relationship that john has with paul's mother and maybe about paul's relationship with jenny that they maybe may cut for time there may also be more about john's slow dawning realization about the consequences of the work that he's involved in. He does undergo an evolution. It's a bit of a, the movie cheats a little bit in this, I think, in the sense that it's sort of forced upon him. It's not something that he willingly comes to. It's other characters confronting him. It's it's Conroy, mm-hmm. the military guy. It's Paul's mother. Paul sort of sets off to do this because he's actually kind of ticked off that this guy is hitting on his mother and lying to him. And he wants to show mm-hmm how smart he is, and then slowly realizes what's going on. But if it weren't for Jenny and her job at the student newspaper, all you'd have is a kid building an atomic bomb for (laughs) what? Because he can, because he's a smart aleck and he wants to show how clever he is. I'm not sure what that gets him except five to 10 years somewhere maybe, but, um, but otherwise, I mean, I think it, I think there is, there is moral complexity there. It's absolutely the case that John is seduced by the science here and and completely, as Brickman says, divorced from the consequences of what he is up to. And similarly, Paul is not thinking through it. It's all very, well, I'll build a bomb. And then, oh, I'll build a bomb and I'll go to the science fair. And then it's like, well, but then what do you do after that? Mm -hmm. You know, when when I said he, the one thing that doesn't ring, ring true to me is when John and Conroy burst into his room in him and Jenny's room at the hotel as they're getting ready to display the bomb at the fair, 
And Paul's reaction is, hi, Dr. Matheson. Like, like, you know, I mean, is he just being cocky or is he, is he, he doesn't seem surprised at all that this is all caught up with him. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, he would have been dealt with much more harshly in the real world. And that they do play it for laughs in the movie. And I think it's appropriate in the context of it, but there are serious consequences there. So, yeah, I think there's probably, there would have been maybe a better way to do the message. And I'm not going to try to second guess. I'm not a film director or a screenwriter, but I, I suspect there was more in the film that got cut that may have fleshed out their characters a little bit more. I think what Paul would have gotten uh, after all of this was done was a phone call from Pakistan. It would have said, hey, you want to come over here? We love you. We think you're a genius. Uh, would you like a scholarship over here? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we're not men to think of of Paul as a as a bad guy here, but I also my reaction to this and this is the first time I watched it was is Paul uh someone that we should be aspiring to be or you know is he a hero is he someone that we should look up to and I don't think there are moments he probably it's like in real life there are moments of things of, of of a real person that you don't necessarily always have to agree with but you understand why they did it and I think Paul does go through a bit of a journey throughout this I would have liked to have seen a little bit more at the at the very very end to see, but then the, that's a little bit of a different film. To kind of know, well, what what is he going to do with this experience that, that he had? How does he go to school the next day right. and, and all of that? But it's it's a fascinating thing to be have him involved with. Yeah, there could have been a montage at the end. I mean, the movie was pushing two hours, but yeah. there could have been a montage at the end. They talked to the press outside the lab, and then maybe you see Paul and Jenny testifying before Congress. Mm. Maybe you see the lab being torn down. Him on the cover of Scientific America. Maybe John is testifying too. I don't know. I mean... You could sort of wrap it up that way. It's like, okay, their goal was, Jenny's goal was, and ultimately Paul's goal was to expose this and remove it. Beyond that, I mean, were they trying to make a larger statement about the arms race? Uh, I'd like to think so, but I don't know. You know, you, you know what would have been great? It would have been a, an article in the Scientific America that says, teenage whiz kid bomb maker has impact on Geneva arms talks. Mm. And it's like him with his experience inspires uh, world leaders to ban fissile material production. You know, that would right. have been a good ending from there is to have the FMCT uh, right. come into uh, realization there. I don't know. Maybe that's just, that's too it's nerdy. Awfully, it would be good, but it's awfully wonky for a right. family film. So, uh, yeah, and I can understand why they maybe why they ended it where they where they did. Uh, so let's let's wrap up here. Let's do our what we do here the rating system. Uh, I always like to rate the you know the content uh, the movie that we're talking about um, one out of five with five being you know the absolute uh, great you know thing you would show your seventeen year old uh, on movie night or one being and I would never ever show this to anybody. But I always like to tailor the system, uh, with the rating system, because if we're going to get super critical about the plot, I might as well be that with the rating system. So I've crunched the numbers here. Uh, I've talked to Paul. Uh, he's a smart kid. And what he suggested to me was uh, for rating the Manhattan Project, let's do it on a scale of one out of five security clearance badges in your car glove box. If you only got one in the glove box and you lose it, you're in trouble. But if you've got five, you know, you can lose one of them and still find another job somewhere, at least um, if some precocious kid steals it. So how many of those would you give this movie? Um, I think notwithstanding some of the flaws that we've talked about, which do not at all kill the movie for me, I don't, I can suspend disbelief and it's still credible. I would give it a four. It's a lot of fun. It has a good message. I think there's serious chemistry between the two key leads, which which helps a lot. The music is fun. I like it. The set designer and the uh, the people who built the bomb did their homework on it. It's got some really good writing. So I 
I enjoy it a lot and I would definitely watch it again. And the fact that my daughter enjoyed it so much the first time around, I think for me validates that rating. It's not a five for sure. A three is a bit more, I, that's not for me, but but you have, a, you, have, you have a different take on it. I originally put three, but I think the fact that your daughter uh, liked it as well, I'm going to give it a 3.5. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to boost that up a little bit here. And the, the reason why it's from, I don't have it as a little bit low. I think 3.5 is pretty good. It's it's an average film. It's fun for me as, as a new kid uh, to really enjoy the very technical discussions and the bomb design, you know, could you build something like that on your own? It would be more complicated than what he, what he did, but I think what he built, they had the core components that they needed to build a simple, you know, simple in quotes here, uh, you know, implosion device. Everything w- was checked off there, and I and they enjoyed that. It's hard to tell in moments whether or not this was more comedy or thriller. Kind of jumped back and forth, but overall, the parts that I really liked, I really, really enjoyed. I think the chemistry was good between the two leads, but I still just throughout the movie did not. Uh, care much for Paul. I think it was his detachment, which I think is intentional. It really rubbed me the wrong way, and I started to sympathize a little bit more with John and his frustrations throughout a lot of this. Um, You're going to get us all killed. Yeah. I know, but I, I enjoyed it, and I think anyone who either works in the non-proliferation field or is interested in these topics is really is a must-watch for for someone, and it's not that hard to get access to, so I think it's worth uh, checking out, uh, particularly people that want to build their own you know, nuclear-powered science project. They have to check it out to see what kind of competition they're going to be up against. Absolutely. Absolutely. And given what you said, yeah, I would say I think that the problems you have with Paul Stevens are definitely due to the writing. Um, I think Colette could have pulled off anything you threw at him if the writing was a bit more incisive or on point, you know, and maybe, maybe he's driving more of his own story as mm-hmm. opposed to being driven by Jenny, then, you know, and maybe if he truly does see the danger of it, in addition to being a really cool project, hey, we should do this. And yeah. then then it might, then it might resonate a little bit more. I, yeah, I like that. I like that approach. I think that could have, uh, you know, made a little bit more plausible for me, or at least in a more resonance with me. But, uh, you know, if you liked this uh, as much as, as we did, and you want to, you know, watch or read or, you know, check out something else that's somewhat related to the Manhattan Project, I've got a couple things here to recommend. I have four that I'll mention real quickly before to see if you've got anything you want to recommend to people. Um, I always recommend this movie because it's 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 interesting. Special Bulletin, which came out in 1983, so a couple years before this one. The reason I like that movie a lot is because I think it has some of the most effective scenes of of, of nuclear danger these scenes at the very end when you know crazy stuff happens is really moving but also it touches plutonium production the hanford site homemade nuclear bombs and the kind of re- the regret of some scientists and their involvement in this all of those topics are covered by this movie which is essentially a told through a news broadcast of a nuclear terrorism incident in south carolina so it's 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 not a perfect movie but i think it's one of the better ones it's probably my top five favorite of of this genre i also recommend a movie from 20 a documentary called Science Fair. It's about uh, nine students from around the world who are about to compete in the um, the Intel International Science Engineering Fair. It's just an interesting look of, of some of the challenges and the frustrations that some of these uh, kids have when they're um, competing at a very high level in the science fair. There isn't a lot about listening to other people's experiments and in in listening to their rooms at the, the hotel and trying to see what their competition's up to. None of that stuff happens, but it's, it's fascinating look at some of the stresses that are involved in that i recommend an episode of the simpsons 
season 16, episode 4, called Fat Man and Little Boy. I will eventually do an episode on The Simpsons because there is so much nuclear content in almost every episode, but this particular one has Homer stealing plutonium from his nuclear power plant job so that he can help build a scale model of a nuclear power plant for his daughter Lisa for a science fair, and somehow that turns into a nuclear bomb. So I think that's very relevant, and it's a fun (laughs) episode. And finally, I recommend uh, to people who like uh, playing a bomb disposal tech, there's a great game out there called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. And the way it works is you do it in teams of two. One person is looking at a bomb suitcase and has different devices. They're basically like little mini games you have to solve. And then the way you can solve it, someone else who's not looking at the box has the schematics of how to solve the different challenges. And you have to communicate back and forth what you're seeing in an efficient way so that the other person can give you what you know oh it's this kind of wire how many of them which ones are crossed okay now cut this one and you have to run through this you have to be efficient and quickly uh, going through it and the game throws challenges at you Uh, it's a lot of fun i love playing this one at parties and it's also a good one to play honestly it's a fun game to play in quarantine because you can separate and have one person be the disposal tech who's handling the bomb and the other person in a different place be the one with the printed out material. So you can play it that way. And it's a fairly cheap game uh, to be able to check out. So, Stephen, you got anything for people to check out? Uh, absolutely, I do. So you mentioned uh, the Radioactive Boy Scout. And I, my first recommendation is the book by that very name, The Radioactive Boy Scout by Ken Silverstein. It started out life as at Harper's article. And we'll throw the link up to that when the podcast goes live. And it's the story of David Hahn, who as a teenager and a a Boy Scout tried to build a Brie reactor in his parents' backyard shed, inspired by the Golden Book of Chemistry experiments, which I believe his grandfather gave to him Hmm. when he was much younger. And he created a hell of a mess, but it became a very famous story. And unfortunately, he tragically died in 2016 at age 39 of alcohol poisoning and a couple of other things. So he did not have an easy life, but it's a fascinating story and well worth looking at. There's also some videos uh, associated with um, his life that are, that are worth looking at. Number two would be The Day After Trinity, which is a fabulous documentary from 1981 about the actual Manhattan Project featuring interviews with many of the people who were there and involved at the time, confronting some of the same issues that John deals with in this movie mm-hmm. and some of the moral issues and so forth. So if you're intrigued about the actual ad project, check that out. Third would be a couple of things on what's called the nth country, that's N with a TH after it, country experiment, which was an experiment conducted at Livermore Laboratory in 1964, where the lab got together two and later three postdoctoral physics students with no access to class out information and basically charged them with developing a credible design for an atomic bomb. Hmm. And a 1967 report on the experiment, which remains rather heavily redacted, suggests that they got pretty far, although they did not actually build a bomb. So there's some interesting articles about that, including uh, one that was published in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists back when I was the publisher of that in the 1990s and early 2000s. So you can check that out. And last but not least, I would say War Games from 1983, because both of these films have very similar protagonists, young men who are very smart, who get away with lots of stuff and don't go to jail, (laughs) but ultimately save the world. And I guess a parting question for you would be, and I know you've covered War Games already, is do you think David Lightman, Matthew Bodrick's character, and Paul Stevens, Christopher Collett's character in this film, 
what would they say to each other if they were in a jail cell together, or if they just happened to meet <laughs> at a congressional hearing to talk about these issues? Because I think they're very similar characters. They both, they both have girlfriends who help them out. Uh, they both get in way over their heads. David almost destroys the world. Paul almost destroys his community. I, I just, I find the parallels fascinating. I would love to watch a Netflix show where, you know, all these, there are lots of these nostalgic 1980s things being brought back up on Netflix, like the new Karate Kid, where it's like, wow. where are these, where are some of the characters now and kind of what they're dealing with? I'd love to watch one that's just, you know, Lightman and, and Stevens, you know, sitting playing chess uh, together uh, in a room in a cell, at a cell talking about some of this stuff. I think, yeah, they'd be of interest, of a keen mind, you know, kind of both kind of how far they can press, you know, push the envelope. But I also think they would be fascinating to talk about maybe what their legacies are in this world with the nuclear arms race. You know, what was ultimately the end of war games? Like the solution that felt great was that the fact that the people in the silos got their chairs back and the human element was introduced back into the, the, the nuclear decision-making process or not maybe the decision-making process, but in the, you know, the delivering of the mechanism. It wasn't a machine anymore that was doing this you know automated it was still someone turning a key and that's that's i guess better given the scenario but it's still dangerous it's still back to where we were in, in the very dangerous parts of the cold war um so i, I think it'd be fascinating to see that because i think it might even be one of those things where paul comes in and says well you know i built a bomb and uh look it's still pretty dangerous even if you have that problem solved you now you have non-state actors that can build these things so it would be fun to see that i wonder what the a third person would be that would come in and, and, and describe some of these stuff. Maybe someone from, um, maybe one of the kids from uh, like the day after uh, or something would come mm. in and be like, look, you all are crazy. Here's really what the big thing is. <laughs> or threads. Yeah. Yeah. No, or it's, threads. It's, that's a really good point because yeah, you both films end on a very high note. Everybody's happy. The world is safe. In both cases, they came to the brink and they survived. And it would be interesting in both to see what does the, forget the characters for a minute, but what does the world in both of those, in, in which each of those films were set, what does it look like afterwards? What does the world go to mm -hmm. after war games end? Do they, okay, the, the, the people go back and get, get their chairs, but do we change the command control system? Does the president still have control? Is it still, do we still have that many weapons? And in, in the case of the Manhattan Project, are we still enriching plutonium and building bombs? Are we still cleaning up these facilities? Uh, what constraints are we putting to make sure that nobody can do what Paul did? Is security getting better so that yep. people like John don't let their hormones lead them astray? <laughs> yeah, that would be actually a very interesting discussion. <laughs> the pessimistic part of me says uh, the answer to all those questions is no, uh, nothing changes. Uh, and it's been the same way because we've had so many close calls with all of this stuff before. And it has incrementally certainly changed and been and gotten a little bit more secure here and there. But we, we're still in a pretty dangerous place uh, these days. But that's why we watch all these movies about the Cold War nuclear dangers and always try to remind people, yeah, this is really interesting. But it's not like it's a documentary about something that happened in the, the 1800s or you don't have to worry about polio anymore. Like it's gone. No, it, the danger is still here. But I'm glad you were here to talk about it. So thanks very much for bringing all of your insights and also getting us going on this particular episode. Where can people find some of your future musings? I know you're on Twitter at Atomic Analyst. Anything, anything else people can be looking out for? Any new podcast episodes from other places? Just 
recorded a podcast with the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation about all things nuclear football, which is important because the football will be handed off to Joe Biden on January 20th. And people want to know how that's going to work if Donald Trump is in Florida. So tune into that. That's online. Do you think he's going to get the same one he had when he was uh, the vice president? Like, does he get to keep the same case? Like, I, I carved my initials in this Halliburton. I'd really like to have that one back. Maybe. I, I don't know. I suspect that the both the briefcases and the leather outer covering wear out and are replaced from time to time. I, mean, I know they're replaced from time to time. So I don't know how long they last considering that they're used daily and wandering around. Here. So thanks very much for coming on here, uh, Atomic Analyst on Twitter. And then I'll put a show link to, I think it's the Nukes of Hazard podcast by Jeff Wilson, who's a, a, a great dude. And he has been a guest on our episodes. I think we did one on Starship Troopers. And he was also on our Godzilla episode because he's a big Godzilla guy. So thanks again, Stephen, for coming on. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us uh, what we got wrong, either nuke-wise or uh, maybe we don't actually know what goes on in a science fair. Maybe it does get that competitive. There are a couple ways you can contact the show. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I also have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, with show notes, with some resources from all the different um, research that goes into each episode, and a list of all of the different movies uh, that I've collected, and a lot of them have been contributions from from your amazing list as well, uh, your, of, of Nuke Movies, Stephen, so I appreciate that. And email, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Stephen Schwartz. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.